Because I don't like unnecessarily long introductions, here's the nitty gritty, here's just what you need to know as you begin to watch this debate. The topic of the debate is whether or not baptism is necessary for salvation. That's the topic. And the way we formatted the debate is an open discussion. It's a friendly conversation, actually. But each of us will bring up one scripture, we'll make our case with that scripture, and then we will let the other person respond, and then bring in other supporting scriptures to you know, explain uh, how they get to their conclusion. And so then we'll move on to another scripture. So I will bring up a positive scripture for my case, then uh, we'll discuss it, then Dean will bring up one for his case, and it goes back and forth just like that. Um, I'm Mike Winger, and my opponent here and, and friend is Dean Meadows, and we're having a, a cordial discussion on this incredibly important issue. Now, if you have maybe specific scriptures that you have questions on, what I'm going to do is put a links in the video description, and if you're watching on mobile, these links will be in the first comment under the comments section. It'll be the very first comment, the top one. And these links will take you from the scripture you're interested in right to the point in the video where we discuss that verse. So if you're looking for Acts 2.38, you'll be able to click it and it'll take you straight there or at least give you the timestamp where you're going to go to uh, to find that content. So let's jump right into this debate. Um, I think it's really worthwhile. And to be honest, a lot of the baptism debates that I do see online are a lot of posturing and uh, personal attacks and stuff. And we've avoided all of that and just gone right to the scripture, make it as clear as possible and um, let you decide what you think anyways. I mean, you don't get to decide truth. I hope you realize that. <laughs> so um, yeah, God bless you, give you wisdom. And we'd love to hear your feedback in the comments section. Hey Mike, once again, thanks again uh, for doing this discussion. I think it's a needed discussion. My pleasure. I'll go ahead and uh, give kind of my opening statement, and uh, I wrote it down, so I'll just go ahead and read that, and then I'll use some passages to support that. So um, I believe that all of humanity has fallen short of God's grace and sinned against God, and so therefore humanity, in order to be in a right relationship with him, is saved by grace through faith uh, in the powerful working of God, not... Uh, man, in and of mankind, a meritorious work or anything like that. So um, I think in light of that, the Bible indicates that upon the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, uh, individuals, upon hearing the gospel message, um, are pardoned on the basis of their faith response uh, in the form of being baptized for the remission of sins. And so that's the I guess the proposition that I'm going to seek to defend. And so I've got um, the first passage that I'd like would be Acts chapter 2 and uh, verse 36 uh, through 38. So I'll go ahead and I'll turn there. And so just kind of the, the backdrop for somebody that uh, maybe isn't as familiar with Acts chapter 2. This is the famous section. Uh, where we see uh, the day of Pentecost that takes place in which there's a, a gathering for that festival in Jerusalem. And so uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit takes place there. Um, we see in Acts chapter 2, um, in verse 5, there were, they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together. This is after the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speaking in his own language. And so from this, there are several people there. And they say, uh, in verse 12, it says, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, 
what does this mean? But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. And so this is where Peter starts his, uh, his sermon pretty much. And in verse 14, it says that Peter standing with the 11 lifted his voice and said, men of Judea, all who dwell in Jerusalem, uh, let it be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Now, that'd be like nine o'clock in the morning. And so basically, uh, Cliff Notes version, Peter runs through the argument for Jesus being the Messiah. And in verse 36, he notes, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And so in verse 37, it states that when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So it seems to indicate there that Peter's sermon obviously has pricked them to their heart. It's an emotional thing. I think it's also a, a logical thing. They want to know, okay, so how do we correct this wrong that we've crucified uh, our Messiah, the person that our people have been looking for for some time? And Peter says in verse 38, it says there, uh, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for this promise is for you and your children, all who are far off, everyone to whom the Lord God calls to himself. And it says in verse 40, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So, Mike, I think um, the first passage that I've used in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, uh, I think that that supports uh, my thesis statement or my opening statement in that we have a situation here where a group of people say, hey, you know, what do we do? Um, and Peter explicitly says there, uh, two things, repent uh, and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And the product of that would be the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, okay, so I, I definitely agree um, that this is a, salvi a salvific passage. This is about salvation. Peter says to them, right, repent and be baptized. And then he tells them, uh, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the result. You'll receive the gift of the Holy spirit. Um, and I want us to remember this, this idea that, that the result is of, of, of what he's telling them to do is forgiveness and the gift of the Holy spirit. These are seen as uh, a salvific thing, right? Receiving the spirit that, that might not seem like an important point, but it will be as we continue our discussion. Um, so your case, I understand, uh, but there's a couple problems that I have with it. Um, first, I'll say this, um, for this to be clearly teaching that we have to be water baptized to be saved, we, we kind of need a, a negative statement. If you're not water baptized, you won't be saved. Like that would be the most clear possible, you know, indication that but water baptism is required in order to be saved. I do think water baptisms in view here, the result after this verse is they get baptized, right? And they're added to the church. They're definitely saved. So let me share, um, if I can, I didn't actually get to do this, so I'll, I'll do this now. My my brief position on water baptism. I believe water baptism is connected to salvation, but it is not required for salvation. I say it's connected to it. The, the, it's, it's tied up in salvation, but it's not required for it. To say otherwise, I think it contradicts several examples in the Bible and contradicts the clear teaching of salvation by faith found in many scriptures. It's incredibly important. 
It's the commanded first step of every believer, but it's not essential to salvation. Uh, So I'm not minimizing baptism. I'm not setting it aside. Like if you are a believer and have not been baptized, you need to do this. It's incredibly important, Um, but it's not salvific or doesn't save. So now back to your passage, if I can, Um, if, if, uh, if this means that if you repent and you're baptized and only under those conditions, you will then be forgiven and receive the spirit. Then this, there's several problems I have with this. One is, um, it's possible, quite possible, that repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins doesn't imply that the baptism brings the forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And I think I can support this with Matthew three eleven. So I'll give you a chance if you can to to get that up. But Matthew three eleven says, "I baptize you." Speaking of John here, he says, "I baptize you with water for repentance." Now, Dean, do you think uh, in the Matthew passage that the water baptism here was bringing repentance? Matthew, what Matthew now? 3, verse 11. Okay. Um, so as far as that goes, I would say that we would have to look at Mark chapter uh, 1 as well, where John is baptizing for the forgiveness of sins. Mm-hmm. So, but maybe we can come to that after we talk about Matthew three eleven okay. for a moment. So, in this passage, it says, and it's it's a parallel construction in that it's the same Greek word ace for. So it's I baptize you with water for repentance. Now, if I'm going to say that this 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 phraseology I baptize you for means that the baptism is bringing the thing that comes after the word for. So baptism brings forgiveness in Acts, you know, chapter two. If that's how I take it then I think the parallel construction, Matthew 3.11, I have to say water brought repentance. Um, but is, is that something that you would also support? Do you think in Matthew 3.11, they were not repentant until they were in the water? Um, you know, I think you, you make a good, a good point there, Mike. I personally haven't looked uh, enough into Matthew chapter 3.11 to come to a solid conclusion on that. Um, it says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he's coming after me as mighty than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit uh, and and with fire. And so I think that in order to get a conclusive understanding of, of what John's talking about, I think you'd have to pull in Mark chapter 1, 2, or, or 1 as well. I don't want to confuse anybody with Mark 1, 2. Um, so sure. I, uh, what, what's the scripture in Mark 1 that you want to talk about there? So... In Mark, um, in Mark chapter one, verse four, it says there that John, and this is this is parallel to the ministry of John in Matthew. It says John appeared baptizing in the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so I think that in order to understand Matthew Matthew chapter three correctly. You have to take it also in the context of what's said in Mark chapter 4 as well. Um, and all of the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and they were baptized, they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. So I think that both of those put together, uh, I think that would be, I think that would still be consistent with the uh, passage in, in Acts chapter 2 verse 38 as well. Um, I, I have to, I have to uh, cordially disagree with you on that one. I think that 
what we're doing here is we're using um, the Mark passage to avoid the Matthew passage. Um, so if I, or maybe I haven't made myself clear. So the construction of the phrase, you're being baptized and this is what it's for. Mm -hmm. your, your logic is baptism br literally brings forgiveness and therefore is essential to salvation because of the construction baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins. Well, in in a uh, the same phraseology is used in the Matthew three eleven passage baptism for repentance. And if I'm going to say if I'm going to be consistent in my interpretation, right, that 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 word for means to get and not just because of, um, then uh, then I can't then I'm going to actually have to say that they weren't repentant until after they got in the water. Which you got to wonder why they get in the water if they were if they didn't have an attitude of repentance or faith. Um, so that, that to me seems to be problematic. Now that the Mark 1, 4 passage, John appeared in the wilderness, uh, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This could be taken either way, right? Is it repentance for the forgiveness of sins? Or is it that the baptism of repentance is for the forgiveness of sins? This this is a little bit less specific yeah, I, in this passage. I don't I don't know that I I guess I, I don't guess I'm not understanding the distinction that you're making about Mark chapter one four. Um, I, I don't I don't know that I'm clear on that about what you previously said about is it for the forgiveness of sins or is it sorry. Okay, let me let me let me. I could do this from two different angles. One could be what I just shared is okay. It's it's not super specific, but let me take it from this other angle. Um, if I take Mark 1, 4 again to say that that word for in the Greek, it is ace. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's the same exact word, baptism of repentance for, as in, I will be forgiven of my sins when I'm baptized, mm -hmm. uh, water baptized with repentance, with a repentant heart. Then I have to, again, take the Matthew 3.11 passage the same way, that what it, what it means is you will be repentant when you get baptized which creates a real problem both logically and biblically because we have examples of people repenting before they are baptized um, in, in the scriptures. Don't you agree that that we don't repent by getting baptized? Like mm -hmm. I'm not unrepentant until I'm under the water, right? You, would you agree with me there? No, I, I think that, that you could, you can make a, a, at least on, on Matthew chapter three, um, I'd have to look more into it, but I'm, I'm willing to take, uh, the point that you've made and say uh, either, I mean, I see what you're saying. I either have to say that baptism, you haven't repented until you're baptized, um, which, which I have, I personally, you know, having not studied it, but hearing this for the first time, I, I have no problem with, with that construction as far as saying, Hey, you haven't repented until you're, until you're baptized, at least, at least here. Um, and I don't necessarily know that, 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 plugs a hole into Acts chapter two and, and verse 38. Um, but I, but I see the point that you're making there. Okay, great. Um, and I'll, I'll let that's, we've kind of laid our case out there for the audience. Um, I'm suggesting there's examples in scripture of many examples of repentance that, yeah. that show that, but I, we don't want to get stuck on one point forever. So um, now, the, the, the reason that I would, that I would, I would bring in Acts chapter two thirty eight, And I think that, uh, if I can use a supplementary passage for Acts two thirty eight, sure, um, would be in 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 Luke chapter twenty four uh, forty four through forty seven. 
uh, it says there, um, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer uh, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed first in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Your witnesses to these things, behold, I am sending you the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. So this is a, I think you and I would agree that this is a, a post a post-resurrection conversation that Jesus is having um, with his disciples about yeah. kind of the things that are going to happen, and this is what they need to do. And so he says that the first gospel sermon, uh, or that repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached first in Jerusalem. Um, and so we see in Acts chapter 1, we see that dialogue, you know, once again, hey, you're going to be my witnesses here, here, here to the ends of the earth. And so they go back to um, um, Jerusalem. So my question would be this, is uh, if uh, repentance and forgiveness of sins is preached first in Jerusalem, then it matters uh, how that's preached, considering it's, one, the first time that repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached post-resurrection. But also, uh, it's kind of Jesus saying, this is what's coming down the pipe, I guess, so to speak. Okay, so I, I think what you're getting at here, if I, if I understand you correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, is that the idea of um, the method of the gospel being proclaimed, the very first time we see it in the book of Acts, takes priority over other gospel proclamations or explanations in other places? Is that what you're saying? Well, what I'm saying is that, that this is the first time in, in Luke where Jesus comes to them and says, all right, this is what's going to take place. This is what's happened. It's going to take place in the future. And so he wants them to go wait into in the city. And he's saying repentance uh, and forgiveness of sins will be preached first in Jerusalem. And what I'm What I'm simply saying is, that however repentance and forgiveness of sins is preached in Jerusalem, it sets the precedent uh, for repentance and forgiveness of sins uh, later down the line and for all time. Because one, it's the first gospel sermon post-resurrection of Jesus. And number two, uh, it's something that would fulfill what Jesus is saying in Acts chapter 24, 44 through 47. Mm -hmm. So in two ways. One, we see the promise of, of the Spirit, which is seen in the multiple languages or the hearing and the speaking in tongues, but also in what Peter, in Peter's sermon. Peter's sermon is, a, in, I think, is a direct fulfillment of what Jesus was talking about back in Luke. And so what I'm saying is that this, this sets the precedent for uh, how repentance and forgiveness of sins is not only preached, but takes place later down the line. Okay, so I, I have a, a couple uh, concerns about this. Um, it seems to me as though what what's being just sort of what you're sort of setting up, I think, is a construct by which we can ignore um, some of the other passages in question when it comes to salvation. And I, and there's a couple reasons why I have a problem with that. One is um, we don't have Peter's full sermon in the Book of Acts, right? Two. 
is, and I, I'm going to elaborate these points. I'll just make them. But what, so we don't have his full sermon. So we don't have everything he proclaimed with many other words. He exhorted them, right? It mm -hmm. says, so also number two, um, there are clear like explanations of how the gospel functions and works throughout the new Testament, especially in the epistles. And so we, I would take those as giving us more information than Peter gave in Acts two, at least is recorded of Peter. And three, I don't think Acts two gives you a case for baptism being required. So I'm not, see one of the, one of the big things I'll make points I'll make as we progress is that my view of baptism is consistent no matter what passage of scripture I read, yeah. but I think your view of baptism saving creates inconsistencies. And so you have to build sort of theological constructs to help, you know, help you with those inconsistencies. See, I view it as it represents salvation and therefore it is related to salvation, but it's not itself salvific in the water act. Um, and so uh, there is, a, there is a blurring of the details of salvation and baptism because it's symbolic of the thing, you know, just like there is with communion, but, uh, but it doesn't create salvation or, or always my, occasion it. Yeah. I guess, I guess my point would, would be, uh, you know, how, how is taking what's in Luke chapter 24, 44 through 47 mm -hmm. and outlining the progression of how it takes place in Acts, building that theological construct to avoid other passages? I mean, but I, I, maybe I need to, to clarify. I don't, I don't think that, um, I think that, that baptism is uh, consistent with those other things that talk about uh, grace uh, through through faith. Um, so I don't. I guess I don't. I don't know how progressing from what Jesus said in Luke, the same book that Luke wrote, is building a a, a theological a theological well, that. Well, well, well. I think that this will become more obvious as we cover other passages. Okay. Um, so instead of just, I, I've made a pretty bold claim, and I admit it. Yeah. But I think I can support that. But I'll, I'll, I'll like do that over time, and you can yeah. see if it's the case or not. Um, but yeah. So the other, the other thing I'd say in the Luke twenty four forty seven passage, if you were just reading this just hermeneutically, right, just verse by verse Bible study, um, and Jesus says repentance for the forgiveness of sins, or repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. There's no mention of baptism there. And mm -hmm. so the actual core message that Jesus communicates will be shared around the world. It doesn't include baptism. It includes repentant, repentance for forgiveness in his name. Um, and so if, if this verse is to be used relating to our conversation today, the only thing I'll note is that baptism is not mentioned in the core message that Jesus says will be communicated to the world. Well, neither neither is the idea of confession that passage, but you wouldn't say that that doesn't include it. Um, well, I, actually, I would say confession is definitely included in repentance, and in but, His name means faith. You're obviously it's in, you have to believe in Jesus for this. So, I'd say the entire gospel message is pro, is is contained in verse forty seven of Luke twenty four. But but repentance and forgiveness of sins is what's mentioned. It seems like you said that. Okay, well, he said repentance and forgiveness of sins, but he made no mention of baptism there. Well, he made he made mention of repentance and forgiveness of sins, but he made no mention of the specific uh, word or construct, uh, you know, confession. So I think the same would hold if you're going to apply that to baptism. I think you'd have to also apply that to 
confession as well. And um, but but there are but there are other instances where Jesus does mention you know things like uh, the, the necessity for uh, for baptism in in other gospels. Mm -hmm. When you say confession, are you referring to confession of sin or like profession of faith in Christ? Um, you know, pro profession of faith in Christ or or the confession of of sin. I'll I'll take it uh, okay. either way you'd like to serve that. <laughs> sure. So I, I I would say I mean and we're 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 sort of moving on a slightly side topic here. I'm just saying you know you brought this passage up. I'm just trying to look at it you know exegetically and it it definitely includes faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus, confession of sin, repentance from that sin, and um and and forgiveness as a result. So let me read verse 46 and 47 and see if you don't see the implication of confession, repentance, and faith. In the in the death and resurrection, it says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day rise, and rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. And then beginning at Jerusalem. So yeah, I don't, that's all of that's all right there. I, I see all of those elements in the passage very clearly. Yeah. My question then, Mike, is okay. Well, where where do we see that first demonstrated? Where do we see that first demonstrated in the Book of Acts, and how does that take place? So I don't yes. know. Can... So that definitely Acts chapter two. I just so I've already brought up my points, so I, I won't belabor those again. But perhaps I could bring up a separate issue. Um, would it be okay if I moved over to the issue of Cornelius because I think it directly relates to Acts chapter two. So this would be your first your first point. Yeah, only if you feel like you know you've shared your points on that well, passage. Well, the only other question that I would ask on the basis of Acts chapter two um, is it states that um, you you mentioned that um, baptism is is linked, uh, or, or how did you phrase it with regards to salvation? It's not required for salvation, but it is linked to it is yes it is absolutely connected to salvation and very in, in its in its in its very concepts okay so so then if i'm understanding you correctly you're saying that baptism isn't required for salvation but it is something that takes place after salvation has already occurred um no actually i wouldn't say it has to be after i think baptism could be the very first thing someone does as they're getting saved it could be the act done first thing after being saved, it's also possible for someone to get saved and not be baptized for some length of time because yeah. of either bad teaching they've received, ignorance to the scriptures, because yeah. of maybe they receive Christ in prison and there's literally no way for them to be baptized in that scenario or something like that. Okay, so on on that point then, when you look at verse um, 38, it says, mm -hmm. repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this is the promise uh, for you and for your children, for all those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. Now, it seems to me, uh, just looking at this, um, you know, as we've, as we've done before, verse by verse, it seems to me that in order to receive this gift of the Holy Spirit, that uh, baptism has to take place before you receive this gift of the Holy Spirit. And so it seems to me that that it, that it's not just um, it seems like baptism would be required to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, that's a great segue to to I figured, I figured <laughs> Cornelius. It would be. I, figured, I figured it would be. Um, um, 
So, so clearly um, he links the salvation experience to receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit here, right? We, do we agree on that? Um, Even if we don't agree on baptism, we agree that salvation is going to happen before they're going to get the gift of the Holy Spirit. I would say, yes, that salvation would, would take place um, uh, in conjunction with those two things, repentance and baptism. Okay, That's but definitely, but the part we, so we agree, we disagree on the baptism, but we agree yeah. on salvation. And I would say for those hearing him, because we're overhearing a conversation, right? This is not a uh, direct teaching to us. For yeah. Peter's audience, he says, you need to repent, you need to be baptized, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, now, are they getting baptized because they have repented or because they will receive forgiveness? So it's an outward demonstration. That's could be go either way in the Greek and Matthew three eleven gives us, I think a case for that. And, um, and then the next question is, is this baptism? He commanded them water baptism necessary for salvation because he doesn't say, he just says, this is what you'll do. This is what will happen. But he doesn't say it's required, which is really what our debate is about. And that I think is where we get into our next passage on Cornelius. Is it okay if I share that now? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So that's Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, verses 43 through 48. Um, many who are watching this video already know at least some of the background here, right? Um, Cornelius, he's he's not a Jew. And Peter goes to Cornelius to communicate the gospel. He's basically opening the doors to the Gentiles. This is the first like authoritative proclamation of the gospel message to the Gentiles saying that they can be saved. It's pretty significant. Um, and it relates exactly and directly to the passage we just went over in Acts 2.38. So I'll start in Acts 10.43. And if anybody's uh, wanting to know, we're using the ESV translation for this discussion and debate. We want to be, to be consistent so that it's easier to follow. Um, and so it says to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins through his name. Now, I'm just going to point out that that was just belief equals forgiveness. There's no mention of baptism there. Then uh, verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, so now he's proclaiming to Cornelius, he's telling them the gospel, and while he's in the process of doing it, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because, quote, the gift of the Holy Spirit, that same phraseology that's in Acts 2.38, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God, which was an outward evidence of the filling of the Spirit. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit? Quote, this is really important, just as we have. Just as we have. Um, and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. I would say this passage, um, and as we compare it to Acts um, uh, chapter 2, it's irrefutably, in my opinion, uh, and I'm happy to have it, have you try to refute it, but I, th I think it's irrefutably saying they, these, these Gentiles were saved, were given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this happened before water baptism. Baptism became a, a second thing because God was, now this was not standard in the church, right? This wasn't like first prove you're saved, then we'll get you baptized. That's, that's not standard, but it's proving that's, that's, that baptism is not required for salvation, even though it should occasion salvation normally okay um couple couple of points there with regards to the verse uh first at verse 43 it says to uh to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who's believe, believes receives forgiveness of sins through his name 
you said there's no mention of baptism there specifically. There's also no mention there uh, specifically as far as the word get, words go, repentance or confession. But you would say that those two things are um, within the umbrella of believes, right? And I, I think you would too. I think that you would say if, if you're having true faith in Christ, you are you are repentant and you, you can't repent without confession. Like this is this, so, is, this so is the I nature of the two. It, I just take it one more and say that that as far as the umbrella of what what faith uh, is, the umbrella of faith, you say repentance and confession. I just go one more and say say baptism. But on on the point of verse uh, forty four, the question that we have to ask when we look at this is okay. Well, um, what is it exactly that they received with regards to the Holy Spirit? And that's answered in Acts chapter eleven where Peter says the spirit fell on them, you know, the same way that it fell uh, on us. Well, that's a, in the beginning, that's a direct reference to Acts chapter two. Yeah. Was the speaking in tongues. That's, that, that's not necessary. That doesn't necessarily follow that. That's the gift of the Holy spirit. That's talked about in Acts chapter two, verse 38 and following. There's a difference between what they received in Acts chapter two, when they spoke in tongues and what Peter promised uh, upon repentance and baptism. See, and I don't know if you would agree with this or not, but <laughs> um, and I, and I think we, I think this is an important point yeah. is uh, for anybody who's following this, this discussion or debate, just to bring it up, bring them up to where we're at right now. Right. This we're saying, if the, the, the Holy spirit Cornelius and that group received is really the same thing that Peter was talking about in Acts two thirty eight, then we have a case where clearly they, they were saved. We, we agreed. Remember that you had to be saved to receive this gift um, in Acts 2.38. And then if that's the same gift Cornelius received, well, then they were saved. They had this gift of the Spirit. Later, they were baptized. This would be like a slam dunk for my position. Um, so so anyways, that's just to catch us up. Uh, go on, please. I got you. So when, when we look at Acts chapter 10 and we compare it to Acts chapter 11, because Peter retells the same story, um, number one, I, it should... I guess it would be noted that uh, Peter was still preaching when these things took place. He hadn't finished preaching and it says there in verse 44, he was still saying these things. Verse 15 in Acts chapter 11 says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as it did uh, on us at the beginning. So mm -hmm. I think there are, two, there are two distinctions that we need to make here, uh, Mike, is one is that the gift of the Holy Spirit is different than the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 was the miraculous hearing uh, in tongues. And that's the same thing that takes place in Acts chapter um, 10. It says there, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come to Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling them. And so what you have here you have a specific use of the baptism of the Holy Spirit for the Jews and for the Gentiles to convince the Jews that the Gentiles belonged. And so the promise that's made in Acts chapter 2 is that the gift of the Holy Spirit is for you, your families, and all those who are far off uh, to whom God may call. So it seems that there's a different function, a miraculous function of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 10 and 11, and also Acts chapter 2. Um, I have to be honest, I don't really follow that 
logic. I mean, in the sense that I'm not sure I understand exactly where you're, where you're finding a difference that, that brings us to the conclusion that Cornelius and his group could have been filled with the spirit, received the gift of the spirit, the promise of the father, um, just as at the beginning they did in Acts 2. And yeah, this, yeah, this doesn't mean they're actually saved. Yeah, so the, the point that I'm making is in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11, there's this miraculous occurrence that takes place just like it takes place in Acts chapter 2, where the people are able uh, to, to hear uh, the, disciples, the, the apostles in their own tongue. Same thing takes place here in Acts chapter 10. But you wouldn't say in Acts chapter 2, the moment that they heard the apostles speaking in their own tongue, that they were saved. No, I wouldn't. But that's you're kind of moving the goalpost. The issue is the issue. No, no. Well, the issue is not those who heard them speaking in tongues were saved. The issue is these people who are filled with the Holy Spirit, they're communicating in tongues, they're saved. And then Peter goes on in Acts 2 to explain what they're seeing. This is the promise of the Father, guys. What you just saw, the, the evidence of tongues, I mean, tongues isn't the Holy Spirit, but the evidence you're seeing of, is, is evidence of God giving us his spirit inside of us, as it said in the scriptures. And you too can have this, whether or not it comes with tongues, different issue, right? But you too can have this salvation and gift of the Holy Spirit. You need to repent and be baptized. But then we have a, the example of the same kind of thing happening with the Gentiles, Cornelius, where they, they get the gift of the Holy Spirit, they are saved uh, under any, I think, any I guess my question, you know, simple understanding of the passage. Well, I guess my, under, my, my question is, what, what allows us to believe that they, that they were saved? I mean, it's, it seems to me that, there's a, that the same miracle, and would we agree that the same miracle takes place in Acts chapter 2 that, that takes place here? Yeah, pretty much. So, so in Acts chapter 2... Let me flip back there. In Acts chapter 2, it states there, um, they came together, and it says there that the tongues, uh, let's see here, um, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. The Spirit gave them utterance. That seems to be the apostles. Now there were, there were, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem devout men from every nation, and at the sound they were bewildered because each one was hearing them, the apostles, speak in his own language. So they're hearing them speak in their own language. But later down the line in Acts chapter 2, they ask the question, what must we do? Right? Mm-hmm. So they, they, weren't, they weren't saved at this point when they heard. Agreed. Yeah. But I'm not. I'm not suggesting that hearing somebody else speak in tongues means you're saved. I'm suggesting that if you receive the promise of the Father, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and you're speaking in tongues, you're saved. <laughs> like, not that you have to do this to be saved, but that this is this was meant to be an outward demonstration to Peter that God had cleansed and saved Cornelius and his group through merely hearing the message, um, and so- and that, and that's consistent with Acts two. It's almost as though you're saying that the ones hearing had to be saved for my case to work. But you see, that's what I mean. You're moving the goalpost. What I'm saying is, we're talking about the ones who were filled. No, I'm I'm with you there. But what I'm okay. saying is that Peter Peter hadn't even finished the gospel message when this took place. Um, he was he, speaking what they needed to know. 
Okay, so let's talk about that for a second because um, you didn't say this, but I've, I've heard another uh, in another debate on this issue, someone suggested that Peter, and, and they quoted Acts 11 for this. They said in Acts 11, 15, he says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them. So this is where Peter's explaining, the, he's telling the story of Acts 10. He's telling it to the Jews days later. And uh, and you were, you referenced this a moment ago, but but he, they're like, he began to speak, meaning Peter didn't even get the words out, meaning that, and to me, I'll be honest with you, Dean, I, I really think this is this is like revealing how strong the passage is for the fact that they were saved before being baptized. Because what we're suggesting is, Peter didn't actually say anything, he or at least not enough words to communicate the gospel, the simplicity of the gospel. And then these guys were suddenly filled with the Holy Spirit, and then Peter had to give them the gospel later. Now, the reason, in my opinion, for someone to say that would be because I can't let Cornelius and his group be saved because it means baptism is not required. No, I, I'm not making that point about Acts chapter uh, 11, 15. You're, you're uh, making a similar point about Peter didn't, but, but if you look at Acts 10, he does communicate to them the gospel. He, it, it says to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And then it says, while Peter was still saying these things. And so those are the things they heard him say. And it and it's obviously acts as a summary. I don't expect it to be a word for word recounting of everything Peter said. It's an inspired, uh, Holy Spirit inspired recounting of those things but what's you know stated before they were saved is is the gospel um okay i i mean i guess we're, we'll just have to agree to disagree on on that section um i have actually one more point i want to make about cornelius if i can from acts 11 yeah go ahead um or maybe a couple of points uh so forgive me here i think this is probably one of the most important passages for this discussion so in acts 11 verse 13 where uh, Peter's recounting this story to those to those uh, Jews later on. And it says in verse 13, uh, and he told us how he'd seen the angel standing in his house and they said, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who's called Peter. He will declare to you. Now, this is what the angel angelic messenger said, a message by which you will be saved, mm-hmm. you and all your household. So this is, consider that the message Peter will declare is the message by which they will be saved. And then in verse 15, and as I began to speak, not he went, <gasps> opened his mouth, but rather he stayed there for days. Remember in, in Acts 10, 48, it says they asked him to remain for some days. So he he lectured them for days. So he's just letting the Jews know. I he, just gave him the message, the first parts of the gospel message. And as act- I began to speak, uh, or one second, and I'll let you share. Uh, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And so, uh, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? What I'm saying is... They asked him to stay there for days after they after this message had already been had already been taken. It wasn't uh, as far as I know is what it says in verse forty eight. So it's not he was there for days speaking to them. It's hey he spoke he was speaking to them and then after all this took place they asked him to stay there for days. What do you suppose he did for those days where he stayed with them? Uh, well, I don't know what he did after Acts ten verse forty eight. He had already preached the message. Well, <laughs> I think he continued speaking. Uh, so I think that he he then he went on to say, okay, let me tell you more about, about Jesus in the Old Testament. Let me tell you about Jesus and his life. And we traveled with him for three and three plus years, you know, and he, he, he obviously continued doing what the apostles did, which was teach them all the things I've commanded you. Um, yeah. And so Peter had a lot to share with them. 
No, I, I'm not. I'm not denying that. But I, but it, and maybe this is just a minor point that I'm making too much hay about. Uh, is it sounds like what you're saying is he was there for for these days talking about the message, and then they were saved. And then, oh, no, no, no. That, I'm sorry. That's a misunderstanding. Okay. He, they got saved. It seems uh, probably there. you know within either minutes or hours of Peter first arriving and okay. beginning to share the message. Um, okay. Then he stay with them for days. Now. Okay. You know, sometime later he goes to the Jews and he wants to drive into the to the Jewish guys in Acts 11. Let me tell you how God saved them. I was I just started to tell them about the gospel, right? Now we know he got the gospel out, the essentials out, because we we have an account of that in Acts 10. But he wants the Jews to know it. This happened so fast, right? It wasn't like they converted, they became Jewish, they got circumcised. No, no, no. they just got saved. And mm -hmm. so, how could I resist them being baptized? Okay. All right. Um, is there any other point you want to make on Acts 10 and 11? Um, just just briefly to point out that phrase, the promise of the Father that we get in Acts is very important. Um, so the, the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out. That phraseology is in Acts uh, 10, 40, 45. So the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out. That's the same terminology that he uses in Acts 2.38 about what will happen when and after they're saved. The gift of the Holy Spirit will be poured out on them, and the gift of the Holy Spirit being poured out on us is a uh, is is definitely referring to salvation. This is this is salvific thing, right? The, the Holy Spirit is the seal, according to Ephesians one thirteen. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. He's the guarantee of our inheritance. Second Corinthians one twenty two. He's given us the Holy Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So this is a definitely in my mind. Uh, it's definitely a strong case that Cornelius and his group were saved. And then immediately told, go get baptized, right? If you're not baptized, you you really need to obey the Lord and go get baptized. But it's not what so, saves you. So you're saying that the gift of the Holy Spirit um, is, is strictly connected to salvation. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. And, and it's what it's all kind of, it's a lot of what Peter's talking about in Acts 2. He's all, let me explain to you why they're speaking in tongues. This is what Joel talked about. This is this is what the scriptures proclaimed when God would, he would, he would do this internal work. So that the uh, the evidence of tongues isn't always there necessarily, but the the uh, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the gift of the Spirit that is definitely a salvation thing. Okay, um, so can I bring up a a point that I think is relevant to what you're talking about? Yeah, that's my spiel on Cornelius. Uh, so anything else you want to share on that, then, then you can share another passage. So you're, let me make sure that I'm understanding you correctly. So the gift of the Spirit that is seen in Acts chapter 2 with the, with the speaking and the hearing in tongues and the gift of the Spirit that's seen on the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, that demonstrates that they were already, were you saying that they were already saved in Acts chapter 10 because they had this ability to speak in tongues? Yes. Okay. Um, yes. Not, the tongues isn't the only way to evidence that, but that is how God chose to evidence that, yeah. So my question is in, in Acts 8, what we see in Acts 8, uh, in verse 14, when the apostles, or it says... Um, it says um, in verse 14, or excuse me, let me back up. 
in verse 11. And they paid attention to him uh, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, seeing the signs of great miracles performed. He was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, uh, then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on hands, yada, yada, yada. So uh, they were baptized uh, in the name of Jesus Christ, but they hadn't received the Spirit is what it said there. So does that fit in at all with what we're talking about? Could Will we say that because they hadn't received the Holy Spirit um, that they weren't saved? Um, no. So there's, there's two sides of a coin here. Um, they had not yet received the gifts of the Holy spirit. Does that mean that they were not saved? No. But then on the other side of the coin, if they have received the Holy spirit, they are saved. So let, let's suppose I go, uh, to, uh, make a purchase somewhere and they ask me for my ID to confirm who I am. And I, I have my ID on me. This now this proves who I am, right? My ID. Yeah. Now, if I don't have my idea, does that, does that mean I'm no longer me? No, but the so the Holy Spirit is a way of of, of saying yes, this person's saved, but yeah. it is it doesn't mean they're not saved simply because they had not yet received that gift. So, does that make sense? Well, it it's and and once again, I could I could certainly be mistaken. I'm open to that. It seems like to me you're saying that on the basis of Acts chapter ten, because they were able to do this, it proved that they were saved, or it was a demonstration that they were had been saved. But in Acts chapter eight where they hadn't received that, that still kind of means that, that they were saved. So it seems like uh, in, in one scenario where you have the miraculous taking place or the gift of the Holy Spirit taking place um, in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11, before baptism, it seems like you want to use that and say, okay, we know that they were saved uh, and baptism came later, but in Acts chapter eight, they were baptized, but they hadn't received the Holy Spirit. And now, you're, now it seems like you're saying, well, they were still saved. So it seems like to me, it's like you've got to you got to stick to where you're gonna where you're gonna be. It seems like to me, if you're saying that they were definitely saved in Acts chapter ten and eleven before they were ever baptized because they received the Holy Spirit, well, then you can't turn around in Acts chapter eight and say, well, they hadn't received the Holy Spirit, but they were baptized which is counter to 10 and 11, uh, but they were saved. I think I got a little lost. <laughs> Forgive oh, me. Sorry. It's, it's, it's probably just the fact that I'm trying to, trying to no, I got do the you. tech stuff along with, along with listening to you. So forgive me for that. That's probably my fault. Um, but here's the thing. I don't see the problem with saying this theologically, um, that everyone who's, who's given, been given the gift of the spirit is saved, but throughout history, everyone who was saved didn't necessarily receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I think that that's a, a, a factually true statement of scripture. Um, the apostles, when they were in the upper room and they're waiting on the, on the, on the promise of the father and they have not yet received the, the disciples, I should say, not just the apostles. Cause I don't want to get into the, the end of uh, him breathing on them and all that. But, but so just, just the disciples when they were there and they had not yet received the gift of the spirit, were they already saved by their faith in Christ? I, I believe I, they, I believe they were, but I do 
think that when they receive the gift of the spirit, this becomes an, a, a real proof of their salvation. And that's, that's my point with Cornelius is this is evidence of their salvation. And so that's how Peter interprets it. Re rephrase that, that I don't want to say it's a, a tagline, but mm -hmm. you're saying that um, everyone who received the gift of the Holy Spirit was saved, but not everybody, I, I missed that, that, that phrase. Yeah. That, I'm sorry. Could you repeat that? So everyone who received the gift of the Spirit was saved, but not everyone who's ever been saved throughout time received the gift of the Spirit. Now, how do you reconcile that, Mike, with Acts chapter 2, 38, where it says, on the basis of repentance and forgiveness of sins, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? Um, okay. Was it Did Abraham receive the gift of the Spirit? We're talking, surely, you know, Oh, hold on. Could you could you say that again? I lost you for a moment there. No, I'm saying we're we're. It seems like you're, and and I don't. I'm not trying to be disingenuous, but it seems like you're you're moving the post. You're moving the goalpost because we're okay. talking Acts 10 and 11, and I brought in Acts chapter 8, and you mentioned that, uh, not you said that everyone who's, uh, I, and I once again I forget the phrase that you used again. I, maybe I need to write it down, um, but it seems to me like. Uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit is something that everybody gets who's who's saved. And you said that not everybody who is saved receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I think that seems to me to be a contradiction to Acts 2.38 through 42. Could you explain exactly how what I've said is a contradiction? Okay, so I'm going to I'm just going to write this down because my memory has has failed me. Yeah. So that, Do you, would you like me to give you a, maybe an illustration of what I'm trying to explain here? Well, just I'll take just repeating the phrase, not or every so every, everyone who everybody who um, received the gift of the Holy Spirit was saved. And, you know, they're saved because they received the gift of the Holy Spirit, but not everyone throughout time um, who was saved did, in fact, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. All right. So everyone who received the gift of the Holy Spirit was saved, but not everybody who's saved received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's the phrase. Yeah. So now and I know that that might be a, a, an odd thing to think about for somebody, but I think people we tend to think um, about our personal experience and our current experience as a, as if it was the universal always experience of all mankind, and salvifically, it, that's not the case. But but in Acts chapter two thirty eight, on the basis of repentance and for the forgiveness of sins, it says that you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So my point is. How how is it that everyone who's saved doesn't receive, or there are people that who are saved who don't receive the gift of the Holy Spirit when that's the promise that's made in Acts chapter two thirty eight? Um. So, when act when 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 Peter tells them this particular group like you're going to repent, you're going to believe, you're you're going to be baptized, you're going to be forgiven, and you're going to receive the gift of the Spirit, you take that as a formula for. And everybody throughout time would receive this gift. But th oh. that's why I brought up Abraham was because it was like, well, I mean, obviously we could both agree Abraham was not given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, well, no, Peter's speaking to a, a group of people, uh, a group of people uh, post death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ in which repentance and forgiveness of sins would be preached first in Jerusalem. And uh -huh. so this, this section here, 
uh, with regard, and, and he says to those group of the, those people, not looking backward, but looking forward, he says, and this is the promise for you, your children, and all those who are far off, all those people who don't even have a relationship with God to whom he might call. And so that's my point is you, is you can't have, uh, you can't have uh, saved people who don't have, who don't receive. Um, okay. So let me, let me take your, your perspective and put it back on you a little bit. If I can, in Acts chapter eight, you're suggesting that if I understand right, they believed they were baptized, but they had not yet received the spirit in, in a, in a, baptism of the Holy Spirit. They had not yet received that, and therefore they were not saved, even though they had believed and were baptized. Is that right? No, what what I'm saying is that that the illustration that you used with regards to Cornelius in 10 and 11 mm-hmm. uh, is, is that these people were saved and they hadn't been baptized yet. Yeah. In water. Not water and, baptism, yeah. Not water baptism, and what I'm saying, and and you've stated uh, that that receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit is a demonstration that they're saved before water baptism. But in Acts yeah. chapter eight, what you have is you have that they were baptized, but mm-hmm. they haven't been uh, or received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And and what I'm trying to break down here is this is that the promise that's given, the gift of the Holy Spirit, is, I think, I, I personally think it's it's potentially two things. Uh, or or it's that phrase is, is used in different contexts. One is a miraculous context. One is an indwelling context. The, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as regarded in Acts chapter 2 and chapter 10, is a miraculous uh, outpouring of the Spirit for a specific purpose, Whereas the promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit, which I believe is the indwelling, is for everybody. It is is what I'm is what I'm trying to say. So if you're going to apply the baptism, or if you're going to imply that receiving uh, in in Acts chapter ten and eleven that the receiving of this miraculous being demonstrated that they were saved, well, then in Acts chapter eight you would have to say. That because they hadn't received it, that they weren't saved. That's an inconsistency between that. Well, and it's been okay. around, around about this, so I'll give you the last word on it. Sure. Um, I, I I don't think I I don't think I have to say that because I don't think that. Um. I well, I, I've already said this. I, I don't even though maybe I'm I'm baptized by the Holy Spirit. This is obviously I'm not unsaved, baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit, overflowing in that sense. Um, but this doesn't mean that someone who has not evidence that same thing couldn't be saved. And I think we have lots of examples in scripture of those very people. We have the apostles and or disciples, I should say, after the resurrection, but before Pentecost, um, we have uh, we have the example here in Acts 8. And if you, if you flip it, if you don't agree with me on this topic, then you've created a problem with Acts 8 because you're thinking they, were, they believed, were baptized, and weren't saved, right? And that doesn't uh, saying, make sense to me. I'm saying that they that they were saved and and maybe we're just you agree that you can be saved without having that baptism of the Holy Spirit. You may, you may have the indwelling, but not that baptism. I think it, I think it may be a distinction between what you mean by baptism of the Holy Spirit and what I mean by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that's a conversation maybe for uh, another, another time. 
Yeah, um, and I, I just, I would just as final, my th last thought on this passage would be, um, you're not going to get the baptism of the Holy Spirit without the indwelling. <laughs> and so that's why it's, that's one of the reasons why it's evident. Okay. Um, you care if I go to my second point? Nope, that'd be great. Okay. Um, Colossians chapter two. Colossians uh, two. Colossians chapter two. Um, as he talks about in verse six, therefore you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, uh, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit according to human tradition. Um, verse nine, this is kind of where the context starts of what I'm going to look at. For in him the whole in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all uh of all rule and authority in him, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Okay, let me just pause there and kind of catch everybody up. So what's taking place in Colossians is you have Judaizers that are coming in and are saying, and this is seen also in Acts chapter 15. Uh, this, is, this is seen in Galatians as well, where you have Judaizers who are coming in and saying, in order for you to be saved, you have to have Jesus uh, plus this operation of the flesh. It's a big issue in Acts chapter 15, big issue in Colossians, big issue in Galatians. And so what Paul is saying here is that you're not, uh, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Uh, That's a direct attack on the Jews. And by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So, Whatever Paul describes in the following verses is a description of the circumcision of Jesus Christ. And he starts with verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, and yet you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, and you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made uh, alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside by nailing it to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and putting them open shame by triumphing over them in him. So um, my point is here, it specifically notes a couple of things. One, that the circumcision of Christ involves baptism in which you uh, were raised, through faith in the power, you were buried with him in this baptism. Um, uh, you were raised with him through faith, not as a meritorious work of man, but in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And so that demonstrates that the circumcision of Christ involves this baptism in which you're buried, which you're raised, um, not on the basis of the meritorious work, but the, the powerful working. Uh, of God, and I think that that is consistent with my opening statement. Um, great. Uh, so, the issue I have uh, to put it, I think, in a nutshell, is that um, this is this is why in my opening statement, maybe this won't put it in a nutshell. <laughs> but this is why in my opening statement, okay. I said I think baptism is connected to salvation, and it, and I think we both agree on that. We just we just agree on the necessity of it for salvation. Um, so baptism is representative in, in Romans. We'll talk about this probably later. It, it gets into baptism represents the death of with Christ. And that's what it says here in Colossians, bury with him in baptism. Um, that's that's uh, achieving forgiveness of my sins through what Jesus did and all that. 
Um, and so there's a connection here for sure, right? There's a blurring between the water baptism and the actual effect of Jesus's death and resurrection. So I, we, we agree on that, I think. Um, so I'm not going to argue that at all. Um, so, and baptism also another to muddy the waters more baptism has multiple meanings in scripture, right? Uh, I bat I, John baptized you with water for repentance, but he was coming after me that that baptized you with what the Holy spirit. And so we're using the words bapt the word baptism doesn't is not synonymous with water baptism. Um, but it's connected to it in, in important ways. And so this phrase here, does it have in view the necessity of water baptism? That's what's really the, the debate for us. Um, so having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. This does not say anything about the water itself. Now, if you're one of the Colossians, you were granted, I, I, and I'll grant this, you, you got saved and you were baptized right away as it ought to be, as ought to be the case. And so you knew this baptism and what it represented and you knew how it comes back to that time when you'd received Christ. And so it's a perfect symbolism, it's perfect representation and it's all intact. But what you're doing is you're wanting to use this passage to say the only way to be buried with Jesus in baptism is through the water act of baptism. And I have a, I have a problem with this. Um, it, oh, it violates the, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just saying, I, I know you do. I know you have a problem with that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. So I think it actually violates the context of the passage. So let me read it again in context, right? In him, verse 11, also you were circumcised circumcised. I don't know what that is. You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Mm -hmm. And then this is, this is then all underneath that, that umbrella of here's a circumcision made without hands. Mm -hmm. We put off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. We've been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith. And so all this is done under the umbrella of the circumcision without hands. Now, baptism violates this uh, saying water baptism is necessary for salvation violates the context in a couple ways one it's definitely with hands you're just replacing circumcision with hands with baptism with hands when the when the uh, the context of colossians is without hands <laughs> so it's and that's why he speaks beyond water baptism to the symbols of what it means buried with him in baptism and um so that that would be my one reason my second reason is this if we're going to compare baptism to circumcision, which I think we should, and I think the Bible does, um, and does in this passage here even, then we have to consider Romans 2.26, uh, which says, um, consider this, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And in this context, Romans 2.26, we could read the whole thing, but I'll, I'll, I'll save it in case, if you want to, we can. The idea is that there's, even with circumcision, you know, commanded, Paul's saying like, hey, God will regard the man as though he is circumcised if he keeps the things that it represents. And I would say, if a person has not been baptized, but they have the faith it represents, the repentance and faith in Christ, then they are in fact baptized in his in his death, bury with him in baptism. And that's consistent with the parallel of circumcision and it's consistent with the context of Colossians without hands. So, uh, what do you think about that, Dean? <laughs> um, I, I just have a question with regards to the baptism that's being spoke about um, here. Um, my question is, of, of the baptisms that are in the New Testament, 
um, which one on a consistent basis is the one in which you are buried and then you were raised? I'm sorry, could you ask that again? I'm not sure if I understood the question. So you're, you're saying um, you mentioned that baptism has multiple meanings, which, which I, I completely agree with you. There is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, there's baptism in water. I mean, Jesus even says to his disciples, can you undergo uh, the baptism that I undergo? That's a rough paraphrase. So I, I agree with you on that. But I, I struggle to see um, uh, where the uh, symbolism is in, in this passage. And my question is, um, it talks about this baptism being one in which you were buried and which you were raised. And my question is, in the New Testament, which baptism most closely uh, aligns with that phraseology that Paul uses? Um, which, well, I, I don't know. Here's what I'll grant you on that. Um, I definitely think with the Colossians, water baptism is in mind, but that what verse 12 is speaking of is the reality of, that water baptism speaks to. So you can't, you can't separate water baptism from what it means, right? But you can separate faith and trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus from water baptism. And that's done with Cornelius, and that's done even even in uh, the First Peter passage, where he says baptism saves you, not as a removal of dirt from your body, <laughs> but but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Well, can I have an appeal to God for a good conscience without the water? Of course I can, and and many have. Well, First First Peter three is probably later down the line. Um, okay. Let's 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 stick here because I think that's a, a a good passage. But you you would agree with I don't know maybe maybe you wouldn't agree with me. Uh, that he is comparing and contrasting the circumcision of Jesus Christ with the circumcision of the Jews, and that he goes on uh, to say that you've put off the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, exegetically, what comes next is the description of the circumcision of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And no matter what that, and no matter what that is, or how that's described, uh, it is completely and totally different from um the the flesh yes see and that that i think supports my idea that water baptism which is something you do with your body is not a necessity in colossians 2 12 even though even though it's it's the picture but it's not it's not the reality of that the thing pictures in the new testament is is something it, it states even right here. It's not just a passive act, but this baptism is is not something that's done with man's hands. It's done through the powerful working of God. Uh, so even in that baptism, but hold on just a second. There, baptism is very much done with man's hands. I mean, just the fact of water baptism. That okay, circumcision was done in the flesh. That was done with man's hands. Baptism is a water baptism. You know, I take the person, I've done many, <laughs> and you take them into the water. This is done with man's hands. And that is that is how it's supposed to be done. I understand that. But what the, the distinction that needs to be made here is that the circumcision that's made with man's hands is this meritorious work to gain salvation. That you're meritoriously earning salvation, whereas the baptism that's taking place here is a burial and a raising uh, that's done on the basis of faith through the powerful working of God. And I guess my question is, 
I would, I would totally agree with that. Okay. Just so you know. So, so the question at hand is, because of these definitions of baptism, which one most closely aligns to the phraseology that's being used here? And 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 I don't. And I'll, I'll press you a little bit, Mike. I haven't heard uh, an answer here. Which I mean, what what's the one that most aligns with the phraseology there? And in light of that phraseology, we can't simply say. Uh, we, we can't negate the fact that it's something that is on the basis of God's power and on the basis yeah. of his faith. Okay. Um, your question is what baptism most, if I understand it right, most closely aligns with being buried with him in baptism. My question is with regards to this baptism. Yeah. Uh, the one in verse 12. We're trying to figure out, okay, well, what baptism is he talking about? Uh-huh. That's what I'm trying trying to figure out. And the only way that I can figure that out is by using by simply investigating the words that are in the passage. This baptism involves in which I am buried and I am raised. And my question is, all right, which baptism uh, of the ones that are in the New Testament most closely aligns with this phraseology? Um the the internal spiritual work of Christ in your life. Because when you go into the water, you're not buried. Okay. That's that's so, symbolic. That's not literal. So right? You know, would you agree with would you agree that the that going under the water is symbolic of a burial? It's not an actual burial. That's not how burials take place. I am I'm buried with him, right? And then I'm raised okay. with him in that. So my my point is um and, and I I need a passage on you said that this baptism was I asked you, you said it's the inner working of the the spirit. Is that what you said? It's, I mean, it's basically, it's speaking of salvation, how I, how I become, uh, how I be, become joined to Christ, buried with him in baptism. Now I'm obviously, you know, there's nothing about the water, the act physically that, that involves a burial, a literal burial. There's nothing about the, about Jesus meeting you in the water. This is all the symbolism that baptism represents. It's not the water act itself. That's it, what's in view in verse 12. This had something to do with the Holy, with the Holy spirit. And I had, I'm sorry. I wasn't. Uh, um, I did mention that there's multiple um, meanings for the word baptism. I did not do this to say that I'm going to try to parse it, but rather, um, like baptism here means this, not that. This baptism is related to water baptism because water baptism is related to what deep things this verse is talking about. But water baptism is not a burial. Water baptism itself is not the thing that that has to effectually save you, um, although it should occasion your salvation. It should come around the time of you getting saved. This should happen. So, and I think that my interpretation is consistent because, like, see, okay, Here's what it would say, and it would totally freak me out, right? Well, it would just change my mind. I'm fine. God, if you want to say we got to be water baptized, you know, whatever you want. Yeah. But verse 12, if it says, um, you've put off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, if the phrase made without hands, that that was gone in, from verse 11. And then in verse 12, it says, having been water baptized, you were saved. Then I would be like, totally, you're right. Like I got to be water baptized, but it, it obviously speaks to the, to the meaning of baptism, the rep, what it represents, not the water act. Okay. So earlier, I think I heard you say that this was speaking to the inner working of the spirit in your life, this burial and this raising. 
And um, I would, that's a pretty vague thing to say because the inner working of the spirit in my life is sanctification as well as salvation. So I, I think it's salvation related though, specifically. Okay. Yeah. It is, it is about salvation. I'll say that. Okay. So, I just don't think it's necessitates water. Okay. So, okay. If it, if it's not speaking to uh, water baptism in which I put off the person of the flesh by the powerful working of God in faith, if it's not the water baptism, then, then what baptism is it? Buried with him in baptism. It's, it's me being um, uh, positionally identified with Christ in his death and resurrection. So, for instance, um, uh, the, uh, the, I'm trying to think of, of the multiple examples of people who were saved without being baptized throughout the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament. Um, but, it, but in addition in the new Testament. So when, when Cornelius and his group, since we've already covered them, when they put faith and trust in Jesus, heard about his death and resurrection and believed him, they received the gift of the Holy spirit. And then they had been quote buried with him in baptism. Okay. I have a question. So can you reference me a passage in the new Testament in which baptism and salvation are mentioned, um, in which salvation comes first before baptism the, the when when one says you know uh you know where where salvation where salvation has already happened um so for instance and i and i know this is maybe well we, we can talk about it later because that's not directly connected to colossians chapter two um, so it, it does touch on what we've already covered though i, I think the passage i already brought up does that yeah, okay. I, I think I think that that now now if you want to say, um, but Mike, the whole concept has to be in one verse, which is artificially numbers thrown up on the page. Then 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 I think you're just playing a game. But 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 in the Cornelius passage, they're clearly saved before being water baptized, and this is after water baptism is a norm in the church. Uh, all right, I, I would would disagree would disagree, but yeah. obviously but that would be my answer to your question. I, I got you. Um, so, I mean, I think we've exhausted Colossians chapter, Colossians chapter two. I think that, you know, the only baptism that is closely aligned with this, I mean, if the circumcision of Christ, I guess my question is, do you think the circumcision of Christ is, is this, is a, is a figure of speech that Paul is using here that basically says salvation um yeah but yes but i think he's trying to what he's he's trying to drive in some really important theological points here right like about how they're saved apart from circumcision and it's not a it's not a work of the flesh it's not it's all in christ it's all in his jesus's death and his resurrection it's not done with human hands and this is all consistent with the idea that water baptism um is not necessary to a, to get buried with him in baptism. Okay, so and 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 we've we've kind of belabored belabored the point on Colossians chapter uh, two, but it, it just seems, um, and maybe it's just uh, an irony here that he speaks of this circumcision of Christ as kind of like a a figure of speech for salvation, and then the the phraseology that he uses in twelve. Uh, directly aligns with uh, water baptism, and this thing is not 
uh, it's in the powerful working of God, and that it's on the basis of of faith. But it's not. It's it sounds like water baptism, but it's not. I guess is is my is the point that you're demonstrating. Yeah, yeah. I'm, <laughs> okay. My, my final thought is yes. It it um it's I should say water baptism sounds like this because that's what it represents. But verse twelve does not say water anywhere. <laughs> okay, but but does it have to say water? Does it have to say water for us to come to the conclusion that that in in all probability it is water baptism? I mean, how many passages uh, do we need? I mean, would would you say that there are other passages that speak to water baptism that don't specifically say water? Um, let me put it this way: if if I had a passage like I do with, with belief where he who does not believe is not saved. Right. Um, <laughs> like if I have a passage like this, he who is not water baptized is not saved. Then I'm totally on board with you. I have a lot of questions. I'm trying to figure out when did this first come into place? What about people who haven't heard or they just heard the gospel and they just didn't get baptized? Are you saying they, that repentance only happens when you're like, it brings up a whole host of issues and problems, but yeah. we don't have a scripture that says baptism, water baptism is essential for salvation. What we have is things that I think are taken out of context um, or or statements like this, where the thing it represents is taken to be um, the, the water itself. So, um, so, so, but, but just because a specific word isn't mentioned doesn't mean that we couldn't build a cumulative case for that word, right? Right. So the word Trinity isn't mentioned in the New Testament, but we could build a cumulative case that the Trinity is an actual doctrine. Yeah. Yeah. The Bible's word for Trinity is the word God. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Like, so he describes God as a Trinity. Yeah. I, I, I'm totally down with cumulative cases. So, yeah. So, so in the same way, we come to a passage here, Colossians chapter 2, 12, and we don't specifically see water baptism, but we see some indicators uh, like buried like raised, like the word baptism. And that seems to represent some of that seems to, to align with uh, some of the things that we not only see uh, in Acts chapter in Acts chapter two, but we also see in Acts chapter eight with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch that he was, he went down into the water and he came up out of the water. We see, uh, the same phraseology in the book of, of Romans chapter 6. Uh, we even see, well, First Peter chapter 3 would definitely use the word water, but, but we'll get there at, at some point. So um, my, my, my concern is, uh, is, is that you can build a cumulative case chapter 2 on the basis of the phrase of the words that are used, um, but so, it's like you're wrestling... Sorry, to round out your point, you're suggesting that within verse 12, there are multiple words being used that, that tell us this is clearly talking about water baptism. And those words are buried, raised, and baptism, right? Um, is that, am I understanding you right here? I, I think that on the basis of those words that are used, in light of other passages, you can make the cumulative case that that's what he's talking about. Okay, so I, I think see, I think buried refers to Jesus's death, not not water. I think raised refers to Jesus's resurrection, not water. Um, I think water is used to re to represent some of these 
realities, uh, specifically burial, but not resurrection, actually. Baptism, I don't really see the New Testament. Maybe it's there and I haven't noticed connection between baptism and resurrection. Um, right. And uh, and then the Ethiopian eunuch going down into the water, coming out of the water, is just a physical description of him going. I mean, you can't go up into water. You know, <laughs> you go down into the water. It's a it's a case for uh, baptism by immersion instead of sprinkling but is what it, what it is to me. Agree. Uh, and maybe you wouldn't. Sorry, I keep saying that. I, I don't want to put words into your mouth. But but there's no passage that specifically talks about someone being buried and raised up out of the Holy Spirit either. Out of the Holy Spirit? Uh, no, I'm not sure why that would be important, but no. Well, it, it's important because um, if, if we're looking at passages that speak of baptism and that they're buried and that they're raised, uh, the, 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 and I'll, I'll make this point, before the, the closest alignment to that is uh, water baptism, not some function of uh, there, there's not another mode in which in, in which one is uh, buried and and raised with regards to uh, something like Colossians chapter two or Romans chapter six that we'll get to in, in a minute. Okay. Well, I, I feel like we've both had a chance to really share on that. So give people things to think about. Um, I'll go ahead and make your, your, your next point. All right. So for my third, uh, second passage, I'd like to bring up the thief on the cross. And my what I'm going to say here is that the thief was saved without being baptized. And we have good reason to think that's the case and that it does weigh in on this passage. And if you don't let it weigh on weigh in on this passage, if you're like, well, it doesn't, the thief doesn't count for some reason, then we come into some real theological issues. So the passage is Luke 23, verse 39 through 43. And it says, uh, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, the thief says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said, to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, the, there's a couple parallel passages that, that help us round this out, and I need to share these to, to make my uh, point. Uh, Mark 15, 32, we, we read about that same guy on the cross at some earlier point, and it says, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. This is the crowd mocking Jesus. And then it says, those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Now there were only two crucified with him. So we know that that thief on the cross was reviling Jesus at some point later. He had faith uh, in Matthew 27, 41 through 44. This passage actually really weighs in on it as well. Tells us more about the actions of the thief and not just that he was reviling, but how he was reviling Christ. And so it says, uh, so also now, excuse me. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. And notice the way they're mocking him, right? Jesus, you saved others. You can't save yourself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. As in, we don't believe in him. Do that and we'll believe in you. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I'm the son of God. And then the very next verse, it says, and the robbers who were crucified with him, robbers, plural, also reviled him in the same way way. And that phrase I think is important in the same way. Mm -hmm. So this is, this is saying that these guys, they reviled Jesus, challenging his very identity, revealing they did not believe in him and mocked him. And the, and the robbers reviled him in the same way. So that we have a guy who is on the cross, not no faith, does not believe in Jesus. 
He then is on, still on the cross. Now he believes. And all he has is, Lord, I deserve this, right? This is confession. He's, I deserve this. I belong here. What I've done was wrong and evil. Lord, please remember me. He's trusting in Jesus and he's clearly saved. So uh, what, do you, what do you think about that passage and how that relates to baptism? Um, well, I agree that he was saved. Uh, I agree that Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise and that uh, that, that, at, at some, that that took place. Um, I think the issue here um, is, is one of uh, the, I don't want to say disbursement. Maybe it is, maybe it's the right, the right word, the disbursement of, of the will and the, the, the institution of, uh, covenant, uh, as well. Jesus said, you know, while he was here that, uh, not one iota, uh, of the law would, would be, uh, or jot and tittle or however you want to throw it would uh would would pass that's a rough paraphrase and so i think in and this this deals with the thief on the cross in hebrews chapter 9 uh it talks about for where a will is involved the death of the one who made it must be it must be established for a will takes effect only at death and is not enforced as long as the one who made it is alive therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood um, so it's, it's kind of, this is kind of how I, I look at it. Let's say, um, uh, Bill Gates wants to go around and he wants to hand out a million dollars to everybody, uh, that he comes in contact with. As long as he's alive, he still has the ability to deal out millions and millions of dollars. But once he dies, he no longer is able to do that. And therefore, well, how do we know where the money goes? Well, it it would be the uh, disbursement or, or distribution of the will. So while Jesus is alive, he can go around and uh, delve out uh, forgiveness of sins to whoever he wants. Um, but once he he dies, as the Hebrews author talks about, the, the covenant doesn't take place. It doesn't. It only takes effect uh, only at death. Uh, once he dies, then there's the the issue of the the will taking effect, which seems to take effect on um, the day of Pentecost, and that's in link with Luke chapter twenty four forty four through forty seven. So could you could you maybe put what you're? What, I, I think I understand what you're saying. But could you just put all that in one nutshell for me, so I can understand your position? Um, okay. So. Um, Yes, I agree that the thief on the cross was saved, uh, but he was saved uh, prior to the new the new covenant taking effect. And the that new, means that means that under the under the old law, as long as Jesus was alive, he could deal out forgiveness of sins to whoever he wanted. But once he dies, it's a matter of what what the will is. In the same way that the guy passes around a million dollars, once he dies, how do you know who gets the money or where does the money go to? Well, it's the basis upon the probation of the will. Okay, let me um, let me put it this way: Are you saying that for the thief on the cross, salvation was simply he just believed in Jesus and he's saved? But for those after him, they have to believe in Jesus and be baptized. I think both require a, a belief in Jesus. What I'm saying is that 
under under this there's there's kind of this and and maybe um uh you'll uh, you might agree sorry, you might, i know you're i know you're under a time constraint no, so I know, i'm sorry um so um there's the old law and then what jesus is doing is throughout his ministry he's revealing what the he's revealing um what the true relationship with god would would look like which is is obviously um in opposition to what the pharisees and sadducees would say so as long as he's living however he decides or wants to distribute forgiveness of sins that is his prerogative just like it would be my prerogative if I was a billionaire to hand out money to whomever I wanted to. I understand the analogy. So I, I think I understand what you're saying and I'm trying to put it back to you in a way that's really sort of shortened is, is that before the death of Jesus, people yeah. could be forgiven for any, any, or before Pentecost before, for any reason, whatever Jesus felt like, but after his death and resurrection and Pentecost, now there's a, a specified path for forgiveness that's different um, uh, uh, and involves, yes, involves baptism because it's a new covenant that's taking place that's going into effect on the and that can only take place once the death takes happen yeah so this is where me i get a little bit leery of covenant language because i feel like sometimes it's used to back away from the clear meaning of a passage and to speak sort of in these overarching principles that we that we use as a filter and so I believe in the covenant and there's, you know, biblical covenants and stuff, but that's not what I'm saying. But basically um, it's almost like you're saying it was easier to get saved before Jesus's death and resurrection and Pentecost than it was after. No, and you didn't need baptism before, but now you need it after. That's what I'm hearing. It's just as easy. Okay. But if I'm a, if I'm a prisoner in, in the middle of a Chinese prison and the guy next to me tells me about Jesus, but we have no access to any water for, for baptism, um, and I receive Christ, and then the next day I'm shot. Am I saved? Okay, my my question would be then: um, Do you believe in the providence of God? Yeah, but it, so in God's providence, am I so, saved? So <laughs> I, I think this scenario God, does definitely happen, and the thief on the cross is an example of that. I don't. I don't think. I, I personally think that the one who. I mean, if the if the Ethiopian eunuch who is in a desert could find some water. Because of God's providence, I think the the person who desires to be baptized for the remission of sins, God's powerful enough to see that through. So I think it's a false dichotomy. Okay, so but so then, in my scenario, you would say, no, that guy was not saved, or he would have found water. Is I think right? I don't think that God would allow anybody who wants to be saved to not be saved. So if 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 the um, if the requirement for repentance and baptism is the way in which people uh, are saved, uh, God will see to it that the person who desires that to happen or who wants that to happen, God will see that through. And, and so that, that's, we'll, we'll talk more about that a little bit later on if, if we have the time to do more scriptures uh, in a second discussion. But so as that applies to this particular thief, he didn't need to be baptized but later people did need to be baptized, correct? Older, older covenant, Jesus is alive, just as I think it's consistent with Hebrews chapter 9. New covenant takes takes effect. Jesus is no longer around. Therefore, it's on the basis of what 
Jesus's will is, which is seen in, in a couple of spots, Luke 24, Mark 16. Um, that's where, where I would, I would rest my hat. I mean, it would be the same way. Um, and I don't know what your take is on, on the sinner's prayer. Um, but if you were still in that same prison and someone said, well, man, I really have, I, I think I want to, uh, you know, follow Jesus. I don't think you would negate the need to confess sins in order to be saved. Uh, if, if two minutes before he confesses, uh, before he, if, if a minute before he confesses sins, he dies of a heart attack. Well, I mean, he said, well, I have this desire to do this, but I haven't confessed my sins. Uh, I think the same rules would, would apply. So, um, yeah, I think that there's, a, there, there's, there's a real issue here because now what we're doing is we're, and what I said when I started my discussion of the thief on, on the cross was if you don't let this say what it says clearly, then you start coming up with these weird constructs for a filter for how you look at scripture so that you're saying like, hey, thief on the cross for you, deathbed conversion, you got it. But I'm a chaplain and I go to the prison and the guy's about to be executed and he, you know, you know, confesses, believes, is repentant, but he didn't get to get baptized either. You have to deny it. It never, it couldn't happen. Like it's Mike, I deny your reality or or you say he wasn't saved. Those are your options yeah, under I'm your not, view. I'm not denying the reality, but I think you're minimizing. And 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 I, once again, I'm not trying to be disingenuous, Mike. But but I think you've you've minimized the the providence of God in that. Is that if somebody wants to be saved, and that's the way that it takes place, then why wouldn't God allow that allow that to take place? I, I mean, that's fine. But we're this is we can't. This is hypothetical theology. Like I can't just invoke invoke like God's sovereignty to create, this is what God will always make sure happens. Like, how do I say that? There's no scripture to base that on. Um, well, we see everybody in scripture that wanted to be baptized was baptized. That's that's an unfair thing because scripture doesn't tell us about everybody who wants to be baptized. It yeah. doesn't, it never, it, the subject doesn't come up. Um, we were talking about the thief on the cross and if I remember correctly, you stated um, pretty much that the thief on the cross was saved without being baptized. Correct? That's what yes. You okay. Yeah, that was my uh, my assertion. Gotcha. And so I mentioned uh, Hebrews chapter nine, and Hebrews chapter nine fifteen, and I'll just I'll just read it. States therefore he speaking about Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death heard that redeemed them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established, for it will, it will take effect only at death, verse 17, since it is not in force, as long as the one who made it is alive. And so the Hebrews author in talking about the covenant of Jesus is basically stating that that covenant, that new covenant that he's a mediator of doesn't take effect until uh, the one who makes the covenant is dead. And so the analogy that I used last time was this, let's say I was a billionaire. I don't know if I, if it was me or I was talking about Donald Trump. I don't know. Uh, let's say, let's just go with me. 
Uh, so I can imagine, right? Uh, <laughs> but, but I'm a billionaire. As long as I'm alive, uh, I can I can go out and, and pass out my money to whoever I want, however I uh, so choose. But once I die, the 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 money is then dispersed on the basis of the probation of the will. What were the last words that I used or said that would allow somebody to have access to my money? And so in the same way, Jesus, as he's living and as he's revealing this this kingdom that has come and is to and that uh, is is to come, um, is allowed on the is allowed to grant salvation or forgiveness of sins to whoever he wants and however he wants, whenever he wants. Uh, but also in reference to the analogy, and I think in congruency with Hebrews chapter nine, once he dies, the question is, okay, now how do people uh, receive this gift of eternal life? And he makes the statement, uh, I think in Luke 24, 44 through 47, that's connected with Acts chapter two that we've already talked about, that that's how people now have access to that eternal inheritance. So that wouldn't, this scenario of the thief on the cross being saved, I agree, he was saved, but this was prior to the New Testament being enacted because he, Jesus said that to him while he was alive, not while he was dead. Okay, so if I'm understanding your position correctly, I'm going to repeat it back to you just to make sure I follow, because this was, when you brought this up, it was like, that's, an, that's, a, that's a new way of looking at it for me. So I want to just repeat it to make sure I understand you correctly. Um, the view is um, the thief was saved without having been baptized because baptism was not yet required because Jesus's death is the thing that starts that requirement. Um, so that Old Testament or pre, pre-crucifixion or pre-death of Christ people, they... Um, uh, they were saved without baptism, but after the death of Christ, you have to have baptism. Please correct me if I'm saying yeah. it wrong. So specifically, we're speaking of the the baptism in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins uh, is what's being what's being referenced here. Um, and I would and I would agree with you uh, that before the death of Jesus, say people like. Uh, I think we maybe we I think we would agree um, that Abraham was saved on the basis of the sacrifice of, or, or Jesus of Jesus the blood of Jesus saved Abraham you know just like David and all those guys in Hebrews chapter eleven I think fleshes that out um, but the but the New Testament or the New Covenant isn't instituted until the death of the one uh, who is um, as he, as he says there, uh, the death of the one who made it is established. So Jesus is establishing this new covenant. And so that takes place, that's enforced once he dies, which obviously took place at the cross. Yeah. Uh, okay, so <clears throat> I have a couple of issues uh, with this. So let me see if I can uh, try to unpack them a little bit. Okay. Uh, for one is... Uh, even though I agree that Hebrews is making a case that that uh, the death of the testator, Jesus's death, is what institutes this thing, um, I do think it's talking 
about something different than that. I think it's not talking about the institution of baptism, but the the institution of of replacing the old with the new. Um, so we're talking about the sacrifices and the temple, and that seems to be the context of Hebrews is the superiority of Christ. Um, and so we we no longer need the old covenant, the old uh, law. It, I should say in sacrifices, the Levitical law, in order to be in Christ. You don't need that. You didn't need that before exactly, um, but it was hanging on until the death of the testator, and now it's not necessary. So, <clears throat> um, a couple of concerns though. Uh, the logic of this seems to be that Abraham um, was not saved by Jesus's covenant. Like, was was Abraham saved through Jesus's death on the cross? One second, I'm I'm writing. Sure. Sorry, I, if you want to respond to what I just said, go ahead. I, I'm, I'm, I'm now going to switch subjects. No, that's fine. Um, so was Abraham saved on the basis of Jesus' death on the cross? Yeah. Um, Abraham was saved by faith on the account of Jesus' blood, which obviously took place at the cross. Okay. And so so in other words, you would say Abraham was, a, was saved the same as me on account uh, of Jesus' blood. I, I would say um, that Abraham was saved in the same manner in which the thief was saved. The thief was not baptized. Abraham was not baptized. Mm -hmm. Both of those took place on the account of Jesus' blood on the cross. Yeah. Prior to the New Testament requirement for baptism for remission of sins. Okay. <clears throat> okay so um, I'm, I'm having a bit of a hard time with this, and maybe it's because this is my understanding of, and, and actually unpack this in shameless plug my Romans verse by verse series online. So in Romans four. I unpack my, in my verse by verse teaching of that chapter, I unpack this concept. The basic idea is that Abraham and anybody who has ever been saved was saved the same way that we are today, that the method of salvation has never changed. Um, that I think is what Paul is clearly teaching in Romans four. Um, that's why he can go to Abraham as the example of salvation to prove that faith without circumcision and without the law saves. Cause he goes, was not Abraham our father? you know, justified uh, uh, by faith. And he goes in this Romans four verses one through 12 is what I would highlight there. And then, well, really the entire chapter, uh, which is a lot for, for me to try to get no, into. Yeah. In the context of our debate, but, <clears throat> um, but let me, if, let me, if I can, I'll share Romans four twenty three. after laying out how Abraham was saved by faith and he was justified without the works of the flesh, without the law. And before circumcision, he says, um, Regarding that phrase, it was accounted to him for righteousness. 423, that, where you are? 423. Okay. 423 says, but the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised Jesus, raised uh, from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So there's a real parallel that Paul's, this is really important theologically, right? that Old Testament saints were saved in the same manner as New Testament saints. In fact, if you consider yourself in Paul's milieu, is that the right word? Um, you've sure. got, you've got, he's got an audience that already knows the Old Testament is God's holy word. And he's bringing the fullness of the knowledge of Christ to those people, the mystery revealed. And he says to them, Hey, nothing's changed. We've just got the rest. 
we've just got the full story now. The mystery is revealed, but the mystery was there, con you know, concealed, so to speak. Abraham was saved the same way that you are by mm -hmm. faith. By faith in who? In him who raised Jesus. Did, did Abraham have real faith in God? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and is that what you need? Yes. So I would say that 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 I don't see there being, um, and, and you, you don't really either see there being a different way of salvation after the death of Jesus, except baptism, right? Wouldn't you say the only element after the death of Christ, from before the death of Christ, is baptism that, that so, you would you would add to this message? So could you repeat that? Sorry, but out. Yeah, like I was just trying to like draw because I have a couple more things to say um, about this, but draw a fine line here. Mm -hmm. Jesus dies, he breathes his last, and now baptism is required. Is that is that what you get from Hebrews nine? From Hebrews nine, according to the according to that to that passage, uh -huh. If the covenant is instilled at the death of the one who is instituting the covenant, uh -huh. then I would say, um, you know, that, that is that's yeah. certainly a, a, a possibility, and I think something that's revealed in Acts chapter two. Okay. So, but <clears throat> did you get my question? So, like, Jesus breathes last. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and it's like, and five minutes later, now you have to be baptized, whereas before you didn't. Mm -hmm. Is that is that what you're saying? Uh, I would I've, if I think if I'm going to be consistent, then that would be something that that I would have to say is is the case. In the New Testament, the covenant is instituted at the death of the testator, according to Hebrews chapter nine. So to me, this seems like a bit of a assumption. Sort of, you're assuming that this new covenant involves you have to be baptized, which which if it does involve that, then Hebrews 9 is a good case. Yeah. You can you can use that for your case. But if it doesn't involve that, then Hebrews 9 doesn't apply to the issue at all, which is would be my perspective is this, this is not relevant to the issue of baptism. It's relevant to the Old Testament law and sacrifices mm -hmm. and all that. And it's not relevant to whether they would save or not. This isn't relevant to how you are saved. This is relevant to how you view the Old Testament law and the specifically the ceremonial, uh, the priestly and all that. Um, being mm. not part of something God's people have to do now. That would be my understanding of Hebrews. Complicated, yes. Uh, Hebrews is complicated. <laughs> no, so, and I, I don't... I, you might be smuggling your conclusion into the text. Well, well, that would be the case if... Uh, and I agree with, with the overarching context of Hebrews chapter 9, that Hebrews is a commentary on, on the Old Testament. However, this plays an instance, and I don't necessarily know that I'm smuggling my conclusion in. I would be smuggling my conclusion in if, um, if Acts chapter 2, 36 through 38 uh, read something differently uh, with, with regards to that, because that's the first time that, that at least that it's recorded uh, with regards to this idea of repentance and for for forgiveness of sins. And I know that we've we've talked about that. People can go back and, and look at that for itself. But I don't necessarily know that I'm I don't think I'm smuggling my conclusion in. I think I, I have the I have the right to that conclusion on the basis of what we see prior to the cross, but then also after the cross with the inclusion of Acts chapter two. Okay, so <clears throat> might all uh, we both gotta kinda unpack that. Now we'll move on to the next issue, which is okay. that the thief actually died before or excuse me, after Jesus. So Jesus died and then the thief died. Um, that seems clear because of the breaking of the legs. Uh, the, the thieves, both of those guys 
were still alive after Jesus had breathed his last. Mm -hmm. And if, if Hebrews 9 is the method by which I bring baptism in, although I don't see baptism in that passage at all, um, then the thief still has to be baptized because he died after the death of the testator. Yeah, but Jesus promised him that he would be, but he said, but Jesus said that as far as the promise of being in paradise while he was still alive. Uh, so he made this promise while he was still alive. He didn't tell the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise dead. Okay, so are you viewing paradise as something that happened on the cross? I'm saying that Jesus made the promise of his salvation before he died. Uh-huh. Therefore, his salvation was already secure before Jesus died. So, so the analogy or so the, the charge that, not the charge, I don't want to be too, too cruel, uh, but, the, but the assessment that you've made, I think, is off given the fact that he's already been promised salvation before he died. So it doesn't matter whether the thief dies before Jesus or not. Jesus already made the promise of salvation prior to his dying. So is your view then that the thief is like an exception to the rule because he got a personal promise? No, the thief died under the old under the old uh, old covenant. Jesus made the promise to him okay. while he was alive, and in being alive, then Hebrews not and being alive while he made that promise, the the institution of the requirement for baptism had not gone into effect because he said it to him alive, not dead. So, so you, I hate when people ask dumb questions. Everyone knows the answers to, but, (laughs) but I'm just, I'm just trying to see if I tell me where, where this, maybe I'm missing misunderstanding you here, Dean, uh, the thief. Okay. Did the thief die after Jesus? You agree on that? Do what? Yeah. I agree on that. Yeah. Okay, so Jesus did die before the thief. Yes. So before the thief's death, there was the institution of this new new rule about baptism. Mm-hmm. But, so, but because the thief had received a promise, so are you saying the thief was actually saved in that moment when Jesus was alive? I'm trying to find out the best way to make what you're saying work. So if I if it was if it was me, I would say. Um, I don't mean that condescending. I, I'm just, it's, I got new, it's new thinking to me. So I'm trying to work it out. No. Um, so, so the thief was saved the moment Jesus made the statement to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. And therefore when Jesus died, it didn't matter because he was already saved under the old covenant. Correct. That would be the most viable way I would see. No, I think that's, I think that's exactly how it okay. is. Okay. So, um, so that's interesting. I haven't heard that before. Not, not that no one's ever said it before. I'm sure they have. I, just, I haven't heard everything. Um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but so that that's a way to, to hold your view together. I'll admit it. That really is a way. I, I think that you will be with me today in paradise. Um, okay. So then now what we have is we have, if we're going to follow your. If I can, to kind of make an illustration with regards to that. So for instance, um, when, um, when the, the lady who comes in uh, and, and when wipes Jesus's uh, feet with her hair and, and showers his feet with his tears, I'm paraphrasing, and he's in the house of the Pharisees. And he gives the illustration to, to I think it's Simon the Pharisee. I think that's who it is. Uh, and he says, talks about the debt, who had the greater debt. I tell you that this lady here uh, is, is saved. Uh, do you think that she, or, or her sins are forgiven? Do you think that her sins were forgiven the moment that Jesus made that promise? 
or is that something that I uh, I just think it doesn't specify the timing of when they're forgiven, but we know they were forgiven. Okay, so like unlike with Abraham, it's like we know that when he believed God, it was like that was a moment thing. He believed God, God accounted it to him for righteousness. So at that moment, he was you know uh, justified. Um, but so, we just uh, know a better illustration. He's forgiven. Maybe a better illustration would be. Um, let me look here. In uh, this is where we need the game show music. Yeah, this is where you get the Jeopardy music. But but I would say that any <clears throat> point in which Jesus in the New Testament says, you know, hey, uh, your your sins, or or I mean, I know John eight is is speculative about whether or not it's in the original, but let's hypothetically take it that it is. Um, and he, he says, I don't condemn you. They don't condemn you, uh, nor do I go and sin no more. Um, were, was her sin, uh, forgiven, you know, at that point in which he made the promise. It seems to me that, uh, anytime I think we could, we should, we should, when Jesus says, Hey, your sins are forgiven or Hey, your sins are forgiven or go, uh, I don't condemn you or, um, today you'll be with me in paradise that when mm-hmm. Jesus says it, that it, that it would take effect like immediately. I, okay. <clears throat> I, I was just trying to be clear with the other one, but I'll get, here, let me move away from John eight for a second. If we can, how about a, an example? The, the paralytic, it says he sees their faith. He says, you're forgiven. And then he says to them, let me, let me show you that the son of man has power on earth to forgive sins, implying that Jesus wasn't just making a statement about the guy being forgiven, but yeah. he was actually doing the forgiving at that moment. So there's, does that work for you? Like, here's an example of the paralytic. I I think you are forgiven at that moment when Jesus said, yeah, I I just seem to, and I'm not saying that you're, that you don't believe this, but I think it's, I think it's crucial to, to note that whenever Jesus says something like that, I think it. Yeah. Okay. So do you think then, um, that there's probably a lot of people that were in between, like they heard the message of salvation in, mm-hmm. you know, before the death of Christ got, got saved, positionally forgiven. And then after the death of Christ didn't need to get baptized in order to be saved. Like they're the thief on the cross, except that they didn't die that day. You know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm generally struggling to, to understand. So you're saying, repeat that. <laughs> so, okay, if the thief on the cross is an example of someone who was genuinely positionally forgiven and saved um, before, you know, under the, under, in your view, the old covenant, mm-hmm. um, I, at least I'm thinking that's how you'd put it. Um, I don't think anybody was saved under, under an old covenant, but, <laughs> but they're only saved under Christ under the new covenant. Um, they may have been under an old covenant, but they weren't saved by it. That's all I would say. Yeah. But anyhow, the, um, what's that? I would agree with you in that assessment. Okay. Um, so they were saved before the death of Jesus, right? Because like say that the, the paralytic, but he lived on beyond the death of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Did that guy have to get baptized to be saved? I think you make a good, I think you make a great point. And if I may, I want to say that there is an example 
um, in Acts, let's see here. I want to say it's either in Acts 18 or 19. Um, okay, so in Acts chapter 18, verse 24, it says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, uh, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being full of the Spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John, and began to speak boldly. Priscilla and Aquila heard him. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross the Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote him. The disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. Now, notice there we have a guy who is saved, uh, you know, prior to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and he only knew the baptism of John. And so uh, they pull him aside. They teach him the way more accurately, and then notice they just write a letter and say, "Hey, accept him." They don't say, "Hey, now you need to be, uh, now you need to be baptized," because they understood what the baptism of John was for. Mark one four, back here. So it's not a matter of, okay, what do I do if I'm in this situation where I've been baptized for the forgiveness of my sins, uh, you know, back here, and then Jesus dies, and then what's going on here it's it's now a matter of okay post jesus for someone who is who has not been baptized for the forgiveness of sins what do i need to do does that make sense so i think i think apollos is a good example of that it's it's uh so in a nutshell how does apollos answer the question uh, that i was asking about the say the paralytic or someone who received forgiveness before mm -hmm. the death of christ then the death of Jesus comes. Now, are they later at some point? Now you have to get baptized, or else you don't. You're not saved anymore, or you. Uh, it's a baptism requirement at some point for that person later. Well, I, I don't necessarily think that it would be, considering the forgiveness of sins had already taken place prior, um, in the same manner as as the thief. I think one another example of that could potentially be, and I'm not saying it definitely could potentially be uh, the apostles themselves. We don't see the apostles themselves post Jesus, uh, post Jesus death, burial and resurrection getting, um, getting rebaptized. We know at least two of them were associated uh, with John's baptism. Mm -hmm. um, but then on the other hand, I guess you could say, it's hard for it would be hard for them to say um, it'd be hard for them to, to preach something that they hadn't done themselves. So I think you raise a good question. Okay, just something to think about. And then <clears throat> here's another concern. Uh, let's say that I, because I'm what I'm doing is I'm trying to say, okay, you've got you you've given me a very much clarity on your position, right? I believe baptism is required for salvation. I believe that the moment that 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 ino was inaugurated was the death of Jesus. Right. And then, so if that's the view, then that means, for instance, John the Baptist went preaching baptism, but that baptism wasn't required. 
even though he was preaching it. Is that correct? Okay, so um, Mark Mark one four notes the baptism of John. Um, so post Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, uh, it is Jesus's baptism that now takes into effect. It's no longer uh, John's post cross. Makes sense. Um, I understand what you're saying there, but Mark 1, 4, I'll read it for the audience. It says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Yeah. So did that, was that baptism required at the time John preached it? Uh, yes. Okay. So then that's before the death of the testator, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So now we have a, a kind of a conflict within your, your view mm-hmm. on baptism. If Jesus's death initiates baptism being necessary, but John's preaching initiates baptism being necessary. Now, that's not my view. I, I don't think that that's what that yeah. verse means. But now we got to push it back to John. Now, John is the beginning of, of baptism. Now, Hebrews 9 doesn't apply anymore. No, Hebrews, Hebrews 9 would still apply because John because John's baptism is still, while another covenant is is in effect, Is my point. So, back so for the remission of so sin. And, and for the audience, stick with us because this all relates to the thief on the cross. Yeah. <laughs> and so, these are all the, the complex issues that come in as we try to wrestle with understanding this. this yeah, idea. Even Jesus himself uh, submitted to John's baptism, not because he had sin, right? I think we both agree with that. He submitted to John's baptism because John talks about, uh, or uh, Jesus states so that all righteousness must be fulfilled. Yeah, it's very clear in the passage Jesus is not being baptized because yeah. he's repenting of anything. Yeah. He's so doing it as a, as a work. Because that's what God said to do. Yeah, and so Jesus was doing a good work when he got baptized. So so those who were baptized for the forgiveness of sins under the under the covenant of, uh, under the uh, or pre-death of Jesus would be baptized for the forgiveness of sins under John's baptism uh, by the authority of, of John. Uh-huh. But the, the question is, was it necessary when John preached it? Yeah, because, I mean, if it's so, not necessary, then what would be the point of Jesus doing it? So, um, <laughs> Jesus did it because it was necessary. Well, but that, okay, that I think that confuses things. Uh, what Jesus did that was necessary for me to be saved those aren't a list of things that I have to do to be saved. They're a list of things Jesus did so I could be saved. <laughs> so, so I'm not, I wouldn't take Jesus getting baptized as proof that I have to be baptized because Jesus led a perfect righteous life. No, no, that's not proof that I have to live a perfect righteous life. No, but that's not the point. That's not the point that I'm making. I'm simply okay. saying that John's baptism was authoritative because God said, this is what people need to do. And Jesus did that not because he had sin but so that all righteousness might be fulfilled. Okay. So in the same way that the thief who had not been baptized uh, was saved on the basis of the promise that Jesus gave prior to his death, um, people uh, who wanted to have their sins remitted prior to the death of Jesus, at least Jewish people, it seems, or I mean, thief probably Jewish, would submit to John's baptism. Now, once Jesus dies, there's a new covenant that takes place. So everybody this side of the cross 
could no longer submit to John's baptism and be saved because there is a new covenant, a new baptism that was taking place by the authority of Jesus, no longer the authority of John. So, for instance, um, there's a there's another passage. I think it's um, Acts. Let me see here. Acts 19. Okay, so Acts 19 right after that. Um, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country, da-da-da-da-da, as they say in Seinfeld, yada-yada-yada. Uh, verse 2, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard of uh, that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what, bat into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized uh, with a baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who's come after him, that's Jesus. I'm hearing this. They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So post-cross, you had people who were baptized into the baptism of John, and Paul says, that's no longer the baptism that you submit to. It's the baptism. Well, he doesn't say that exactly. <laughs> but but they did get baptized into Jesus' name. But I, but I think that that's an... Uh, an and you're probably going to disagree with this. That's an, I think that's a necessary inference from what's taking place in, in Acts 19. But you have people who've been baptized into John. So this is, this is kind of, we're kind of moving away from the thief issue here, but, but my, my point would be in Acts 19, they are called disciples. Um, and that's used without a qualifier. And in Acts, my understanding is the phrase disciples without a qualifier is, is implying disciples of Christ. Um, they knew they were baptized by John. They knew about Jesus, but they had not. And here's where the covenant issue comes in. They had not entered into the fullness of the spirit, but they were saved. Mm -hmm. So they were saved as Old Testament saints. And to me, this verse comes in saying um, that even after the death of Jesus, there are people who were saved under, in a sense, the knowledge that they had before the death of Jesus. Um, if, it just gets complicated. Forgive me for going off on that, but, That's fine. but yeah, so so yeah, that. but let, let me see if, because I'm trying to kind of come at a target that helps us with the thief on the cross. And the target I'm coming at is, when is baptism necessary? And you said after the death of Jesus, but then we talked about John's baptism. And you said, okay, well, before the death of Jesus, but it was John's baptism. Now, the difference between John's and Jesus' baptism is just more knowledge. And um, that, as far as the water act itself, they're both uh, baptism re referencing repentance. Um one of them is with a full knowledge of who Jesus is. One's with partial knowledge, and but the water act is is almost identical. Um, but now we're back to the thief. So was the thief baptized by John? Because if John's baptism is required, and the thief on the cross was not baptized by John, there are two options: he was or he wasn't. Right? If he was not baptized by John, well, then it's not required. Well, the text doesn't say. The text doesn't say. It gives us good in, good indications, though, that we can use to deduce what happened. Um, so my, my, my position would be, he, he either was not baptized by John or he was baptized for fake <laughs> by John, because what I can say on the cross is he was not yet repentant even while on the cross. Mm -hmm. And it was a baptism of repentance. Well, and I mean, the thief I mean, was not repentant. So only there, there's, there's a lot of questions that we could hypothetically raise about the thief. We could say, well, maybe he, uh, you know, it says there that John went and, and, uh, was was baptizing and and all of Judea came out to 
to John, how do we know that that thief wasn't a part of that group? And then he was baptized and they fell away, depending on how you, how one person might be falling away and then came back. Right. Uh, there's just a lot of, there's just a lot of things about the thief that we don't know. And I think any assumption about whether he was or wasn't baptized is to, is to smuggle kind of my, and I'll say this, my, my, uh, the conclusion that I want to be there. So when someone asked me, was the thief on the cross baptized by John? I don't know. The text doesn't say. Um, I, I don't think, I think I'm getting clear indications from the text instead of smuggling. So I actually, we, we went over this uh, in our previous, the first half of our discussion. So I, we talked, I'll just bullet point it real quick, right? The thief gets on the cross um, and he, both thieves are reviling Jesus. And we hear specifically exactly what they were reviling Jesus with. And they copied the revilings of, of, of those in the crowd who said, um, if, you're, if you're the Messiah, if you're the Christ, come down off the cross and then we'll believe in you. Then we will believe in you. Like, we don't believe in you. We're mocking you because we don't believe in you. John's baptism was repent and believe in the one who's to come. The thief on the cross demonstrates that he has not repented and he has not believed. So the options to me are he had a fake baptism. <laughs> like he, he went in the water and didn't mean it but we have no reason to assume that that happened or, or more likely since baptism was repentance and belief, even in John's time. And he represents not repentance and not belief mm -hmm. on the cross. Then I guess my question is, why isn't the third option of he believed and fell away, not on the table? Um, let me I'll put it this way. Why, why should that be on the table? Well, I mean, everything that we've looked at in both of these examples uh, if there's if there's no textual indication regarding the the baptism of the thief, then everything is simply an assertion by you and me. And so it seems like. But I, I'm not just making assertions. You're kind of ignoring that I've made like real specific points drawn from an exegetical look at the text. No, but but I'm but I'm saying is is that re regard in in light of John's baptism, why I, I'm saying why. Is that not a, a possibility of an explanation for where the thief is? Um, well, because it certainly could be. I mean, there 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 are people that um, you know do undergo those religious commitments and then fall away, and then maybe come back later. And so, you would think maybe he had a genuine baptism of genuine repentance and belief, fell away, cursed Christ on the cross changed his mind, put his faith in Jesus, and he was saved. And that baptism that happened before was effective for saving him afterwards. No, and because that kind of has to be the case if your if your doctrine on baptism is correct. Well, I'm simply saying that if we're gonna make um or if we're gonna seek to draw possible conclusions about the thief on the cross with regards to John's baptism, then all options should at least be on the table and and considered and and I've heard you use two but I'm I'm simply investigating or or asking why isn't the third one which which I've just laid out I'm not saying that I believe that it takes place I've simply said I don't know because the text doesn't indicate well would you would you agree with this that that third option that you're offering is the only option that's viable for your view on baptism I would say that the third option is just as viable as the other two that you've mentioned no, no. I, what I'm saying is if your baptism view is to hold, is to maintain consistency through the scripture, it has to be that the thief was baptized by John 
in in a salvific sense. It has to be. I don't I don't necessarily know that once again, and I I think we're beating a dead horse here. I don't I, I don't necessarily know that I have to commit to to that either because once again the text doesn't say and i mean i know that that's i'm speaking money, but I'm, about but doctrinal cohesion right like if the thief was never baptized by john gets saved um on the cross at the on this deathbed isn't that a death blow to at least the idea that john's baptism was required is that a death blow mm-hmm. no because the 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 new covenant hasn't hadn't been enforced yet but that's why I said John's baptism. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I don't, like I said, you, I don't want to belabor it too much and we've actually more to talk about. So, yeah. um, okay. Um, how about you take us to your third passage and then I'll do <laughs> my third passage and we'll, uh, sounds good. Um, all right. So, uh, Romans chapter six, um, uh, Paul is in the middle of a discussion as far as theology with regards to um, the power of the gospel. Um, he's going to go ahead and, and do this all the way up till chapter 11. And so basically in chapter one, Paul says the gospel has the power to save uh, and the Gentiles have sinned uh, and fallen short. Chapter two, the Jews have sinned and fallen short. Chapter three, everybody's fallen short. Real chipper sections. Um, chapters uh, four, four and five speak to uh, that we're saved uh, by faith. He gives Abraham as an illustration there. Chapter five, he talks about the death uh, in Adam that in some sense we all are a part of, but also that the life in Jesus Christ we also take part in as well as, as Christians. And then in chapter six, he's answering a question. Um, that I, I think Paul is um, anticipating here. Let me move my screen up, sorry. Uh, anticipating here because at the very end of chapter 5, he says, chapter 5, verse 20, now that the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abound all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so... This is where you could kind of see everybody in church saying, ha, more sin, more grace. And Paul answers that question, says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us, and this is the point that I'll make with regards to baptism. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him. Uh, by baptism into death in order just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so my point from Romans chapter 6 would be uh, that Paul is talking to a group of Christians who have already been saved. Uh, we, we would both agree that Romans is talking is a, is a uh, letter to people who are already saved. Um, and he notes... Um, that you can't you can't live the way that you used to live, and don't you remember that when you were baptized, when you were buried, uh, you were buried into Christ's death, so that the outcome of that is not just the death of your of of uh, putting sin to death, 
but you're also raised so that you might, that you might walk in newness of life. And one more point, and I'll let you respond, Mike. Now, notice um, uh, over here in verse 15, he states, What then are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, your slaves are the one whom you obey, either sin which leads to death or obedience which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you were once slave of sin have become obedient from the heart to that standard of teaching to which you were committed. And exegetically, the question is, okay, well, what standard of teaching were they committed that they obeyed from the heart? Well, it seems that that, that is a reference to uh, the beginning of the chapter, that burial that results uh, in the, the walk of newness of life, which would be baptism. So, which, which verse was that? The obedience? Verse 17. 17. 6, 15 through 17. Okie dokie. So two points kind of in a nutshell. One, that the baptism here that is is mentioned is is uh, a burial towards the and a, and a raising the walk in his life, but also you have to accidentally ask the question: What form of doctrine had they been committed to? And in, in, in chapter six, the one that's mentioned is this baptism. Um, okay, so just dig in. Let's go, baby. <laughs> the thing I love about our conversation here is we're both at least I I, I know we both are. We're both really trying to bring clarity and. Um, I'm, I looked online for baptism debates and what I found was at least a couple of things that I just found to be annoying because most of it was posturing. Well, I just believe the Bible and it's like, duh, <laughs> but let's, let's like, if you're having this conversation. Like we're, we're not yeah. going to have a conversation with, with a skeptic, obviously. Yeah. So, um, okay. So Romans six is this baptism. Yeah. Um, can I tackle the first part? Your, your core passage here in the first part of Romans 6 first, and then we'll come back to that. Obedience represent, um, references the act of baptism. That was from verse 17, right? That was your second kind of point. Uh, slay away, my friend. <laughs> slay away. All right. So um, uh, I, I like, I'm trying to be consistent here. And, and like I said earlier, um, I really believe that baptism is connected to the idea of salvation. Um but it is not the way in which we get saved. I, and I say water baptism is connected to the idea of salvation and the concept of it and put being, being in Christ, but it's not the method by which we get saved. But knowing that it's the first thing every believer does, it, of course, being connected, being the first act of a believer, it it can come in passages to look like, hey, is, is that what saves me? But it's but that word baptism is being used in multiple ways. Um, there's multiple layers, right? There's the water, but then there's the actual effect, the the death and resurrection of Jesus being identified with him. And my case is that that doesn't require the water. So verse four uh, or verse three of Romans six, do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Notice that it didn't say what I'm just saying it doesn't say water baptism here. Like we have to recognize this. And the word baptism is used in multiple ways. If it says all of us who've been water baptized into Christ um, were baptized into his death, I still think it wouldn't be an ironclad case, but it would be a stronger case. You're snickering at me. Verse four says, uh, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. So 
we've this is baptism and burial we talked about that previously how they're correlated together the, the correlation between the two um could this be saying can i interpret this to mean i have to have water baptism or i'm not saved um, the only way to get baptized into the death of jesus is to be water baptized that that's what your theology would say correct yes sir okay uh, at least now maybe not before the cross but now it would well yeah Okay. Um, I think, I think definitely not. Um, I think that the text is, speaking. <laughs> how did I know you're going to say that? <laughs> I don't know. You just, <laughs> gift of prophecy. The text is speaking about the effect of being in Christ positionally. It's not giving any clear indication that water baptism is the only way to achieve that effect. Now, if let's say that hypothetically somebody's saved, but they're not water baptized, just hypothetically. Could this be said about them? Like, could the same phrase be used of them that they were still baptized into Christ because they were saved? They were baptized into his death when they believed and trusted in Jesus Christ. They just hadn't had the water effect, um, which is incredibly important and everyone should do. Um, I think I think it could be said. I think you can read it with that view and it, all of scripture becomes consistent um, instead of certain verses causing us to really wonder about other ones. Um, so yeah, the... Um, this speaks of the spiritual reality. The, the question, can I be buried with him by baptism into death without water baptism, I think is answered when we look at the parallel of circumcision, right? When it says in Romans uh, 2.26, it, it, it shows us that circumcision, a physical act, was not as important as what it represented. And you could actually have what it represented without the physical act. Now, if that's true with circumcision... I think it's true with baptism. So Romans 2.26 says, if a man who's uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And then it goes on, then he who's physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter his praise is not from man, but from God. This is in the same book. It's in Romans. This is how Paul thinks about these issues. Um, and he's saying, yeah, the outward sign circumcision was important, not salvific, but it was important for other purposes. And the, 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 uh, the thing circumcision represents could be separated from the act itself, according to Paul. And I would say um, you would probably believe this as well, at least in some sense, maybe not as far as I take it, when you think that someone can get baptized and it didn't save because there wasn't the internal work of the Holy Spirit in their life, they didn't really give their life to Christ. Um, so you'd say, well, I separate salvation from baptism in that situation. I would say you can also separate it the other way where they got really saved but hadn't been water baptized. So that's consistent with Paul. Um, uh, what do you think of that? I guess my, my question is, is this um what do you take um that baptism that's mentioned in romans chapter six three and four to be if it's not um water baptism then which baptism or what baptism is it referencing um good question so in the bible hold on there's a verse i want to share with you first corinthians 12 13. George bush impersonation it wasn't. It was pretty good. Was it? I didn't even realize I was. I do these dumb accents sometimes. Uh, not that the accents are dumb. It's my version of them is dumb. Uh, so hopefully no one gets offended by them. But First Corinthians twelve thirteen it says, um, "For by one Spirit 
we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, all have been made to drink into one spirit. Um, I would say the baptism is talking about just what Romans 6, what, what 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it, on the surface, if you didn't assume water baptism and you just read it, it's I'm baptized into his death. I'm baptized into the body. I'm literally brought into Christ, brought into the body of Christ. I'm immersed positionally in Jesus now. Um, so I think it's talking about that spiritual reality of salvation and the description of bury with him in baptism relates to the spiritual reality more so than it does the physical water. Uh, water again is not a burial, but it does represent that. Um, and so I think that first Peter, we've brought this up once before briefly, it brings this in even more, the difference between the water act and the spiritual reality. Well, I want to hold off on first Peter because that's, All right, well, we'll put it, we'll put a bookmark in that. Yeah. Cause that's something later down the line that I want to, yeah, we'll put a bookmark in that. And jokingly, I want to hammer you with that. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> I think I'm going to run out of time right before we get there. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So are you saying that this baptism on the basis of the first Corinthians passage is the, is Holy Spirit baptism? Is that what you're saying? I'm just, uh, no, I'm not making, that could be the case, but I'm I'm not making such a bold claim. I'm merely saying that, there is such a thing as baptism, the spiritual reality that is not the same thing as water baptism. And that's what Romans 6 seems to be speaking of. Now, since water baptism relates to the spiritual reality, it's understandable that we would assume it in there, but that is an assumption. I guess, And I guess that's my point. I guess that's a question I would raise. Where in scripture do we see um, uh, baptism uh, in which you have this uh burial and resurrection uh, where where is it clearly stated that that this is a spiritual um you know reality because in the same way that she said uh it doesn't say there we were buried therefore with him by water baptism it also doesn't say we were buried therefore with him in this baptism that's a spiritual reality into his death no it, it doesn't say either of those but what it does say is we were so, buried with him that, yeah. that idea of buried with him is a spiritual reality, is it not? Now, how, I guess my question is, with regards to that point, we both, we both know that that is a, a reality, that is something that does take place. And the question is, uh, that, that I guess we're trying to answer here, is at what point does that take place? At what point does that burial, that spiritual reality take place? And, uh, you know, uh, my, my point is in the same way that I've assumed that it's, um, this water act, so to speak, you're saying that it's at the moment of belief that they're buried. Um, I would say it's the moment of, um, regeneration. And, okay. and salvation. So, so the question then is, when does that moment come? And that would be the moment one's, one's heart and conscience appeals to God. Not in all cases is it easy to identify that moment. But I, I, think, that's a, I think that's an unrelated issue. Okay. So can I um, speak yeah, to the idea of verse 17 referring obe to obedience? Yeah. 
Go for it. So let me actually bring it up again. Romans um, 6.17, correct? Um, uh, yeah, uh, 15 through 17. Yeah, um, but we read the whole thing. So I'll just read verse 17 for now. Uh, but God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Now, your idea would be that this is, if I understand you right, this is obeyed from the heart is a reference to baptism earlier in the passage. Well, I would say, um, D, uh, verse 17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slave to sin became obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having said. Oh, sorry. I switched translations on you. Sorry. Didn't mean to. What verse 17. Get? Yeah. I read New King James. Oops. So, yeah. No comment. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to get in trouble. It won't affect this verse at all. So there, there you go. No, and I think exegetically, as as we're looking at the looking at the totality of um, chapter six, um, the f- the form of teaching that's mentioned uh, is that is verse three and four. Okay, so they obeyed from a heart the form of teaching or the the standard of doctrine, the the doctrines of Christianity. That's how I would take that. Um, does that sound about right? Well, I mean, that's that's fine by me, but I think more specifically in chapter six, the the form of teaching that's already that's been mentioned before you get into these analogies about slave yeah. and instrument is baptism that you're buried and raised to walk in the life. Yeah, so I, I I see baptism as the spiritual reality. It's not something you do. Uh, it's something that's done to you. Um, but but the, the the use of the word obedience implies that there was an act of work, but it's qualified in the passage. You obeyed from the heart. Mm-hmm. And what did they obey is that form of doctrine. And so this is what I think Paul refers to in Romans 1, 5 when he introduces the book. And he says, through, whom we, through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations. So this is um, not a obedience in the sense of works. It's Mm -hmm. they've trusted in Christ. They've, they've believed the gospel. um, And that's what obedience from the heart would refer to uh, is a a belief. It's not a work. It's a belief of the gospel. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that what, what he's suggesting is uh, some type of, of, of meritorious. Well, I, I'm saying it couldn't apply to water baptism in any direct sense well, because of that. Well, couldn't you obey water baptism from the heart? You could, but that, that's not how he would. <laughs> you could, you could hypothetically obey anything from the heart, but in yeah. Paul's writing, obedience, they the thing they obeyed was the teaching they received, and they obeyed it how from the heart they received the teaching, and that and was I, that was what they did, and so um, in the end of Romans. Uh, this this comes in again, so it's in the it's in the bookends of Romans, Romans one, Romans sixteen, where he says uh, mm-hmm. about the gospel. He says to bring about the obedience of the faith, the mm-hmm. obedience of faith. Um, so this is the same kind of concept. It's you're yeah. you're you're trusting, and that of course will lead to life change, but it's not the same thing. Now, just just so I'm clear, um, and and this has something to do not just with with this discussion of Romans six, but also the the totality of our conversation. I, I want it to be, um, I'm not going to say you're not being fair, but when, but you're going to imply it by saying you're not well, saying, no, I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not. 
just just for clarity. Yeah. Um, when let's say you're in service and someone wants to uh, obey obey the gospel. Yeah. Um, is is there a moment in which there's like uh, an altar call, uh, the sinner's prayer? I mean, at what point? I mean, when when that takes place where you preach, what does that look like? I mean, what does that entail? Um, well, it it's as varied as the situations are varied. And so it may be that there's a call to repentance and faith corporately. You could call this the sinner's prayer. Um, or it may be, especially if I have a one-on-one conversation, then I want to talk and pray with them. If if I think that they're truly responsive to Jesus, I'll be honest, I don't think I have to lead them through a prayer for them to be saved here. I think that if their heart is truly responsive to the Lord, it's happening. Um, so I, I pray God gives me wisdom and discernment for the particular scenario I find myself in. I would immediately thereafter say, let's get you baptized. <laughs> and so that that to me is a huge priority, one that shouldn't wait six months and doesn't require a year of classes. Like <laughs> it's like it's like you have to receive the gospel, not every aspect of Christian theology in order to be baptized. Okay. Just but but the moment of salvation is a is a, is something that I I could not I could not pinpoint um, very easily. So you would you would then say that someone doesn't have to say the sinner's prayer in order to say? Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. And we have examples of that in the Bible for sure. Yeah. yeah. Just making sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now they have to do the thing the sinner's prayer is trying to talk about: repentance and faith. Okay. Whether yeah. or not that comes in the form of the of a of a of what we call the sinner's prayer is. Uh, is not necessary. Yeah. And you, and you, what you're saying, you couldn't have, okay. I think I understand what you're saying. All right. So, okay. So uh, was there something else you wanted to mention on Romans six? Yeah. Um, and, and I get what you're saying in the totality of Paul's teaching in, in Romans and even in the totality of, uh, of scripture about obeying the Christian doctrine. But I, I guess what I'm trying to hone in on in chapter six I lost you. Okay, sorry. Okay, the last I heard was you want to hone in on, on chapter six. Um, hone in on chapter six is that, um, would you say that the form of teaching that's specifically mentioned prior to 17 is this baptism in which somebody is buried and raised to walk in his life? Regardless of whether you think it's a spiritual... No, uh, no, no. I think the form of teaching is is... The gospel he's unpacked throughout Romans, all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. You know, Jesus paid the price for your sin. Put your faith and trust in Him. That's the okay. form of teaching. Okay. Yeah. All right. so well, the, the what happens to you when you believe it is Romans six. Okay, so what happens to you when you believe it is is Romans six. You bury with Him in baptism. Okay, but that baptism is not water baptism. That's the spiritual reality. I would say it, it it frequently is water baptism, just like, uh, just like circumcision of the heart frequently coincides with circumcision of the flesh. But the two are not inseparable. That's my point. Okay. Yeah. Wow. For for your your theology to hold, the two have to be inseparable. Um, my thought is Romans gives us a clear indication that the the outward sign is separable from the inward reality. But but where do you see? Baptism being described as an outward sign of an inward reality in Scripture. Uh, First Peter. 
<laughs> okay. Well, well, man, we're going to have fun with First Peter, I guarantee. <laughs> All right. So um, my next passage is my final passage to bring up, at least prepared passages, Romans 10. Uh, Romans 10 verses 9 through 13. And Romans obviously is a great book for establishing how we are saved. In fact, so much of the book goes to a detailed explanation of how this all works. And Romans 10, 9 through 13 says, um, oh, before I quote it, let me tell you my point. Here's my conclusion. So you know why I'm reading this first. Okay. Um, so I think baptism as a requirement, water baptism, I should say, because I think baptism is a requirement, but I'm talking about the spiritual reality. Water baptism as a requirement goes against several plain passages that show that the the quote formula for salvation is is a faith response to God. So um, Romans 10 verses 9 through 13 is one of those passages. It says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Like that's, I'm going to keep reading, but that's, that's the whole kit and caboodle, right? Like confession and faith, you know, and then verse 10, uh, for with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth confession, one confesses and is saved for the scripture says, even uh, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so this does two things. It gives us um, salvation through a faith response to God and it, it, it it's tying it into the old Testament, meaning that mm -hmm. Paul's case in Romans is this is always how you've been saved. Salvation has never changed. The results of when you put faith have changed when Jesus brought in that new covenant, but you were always saved under the new covenant. And so the, the experience of the one who believes is different post-cross or post-Pentecost, but not the method of salvation that has not changed at all. And so it's just faith and that's really important in bap in uh, in this conversation to realize you have to start saying and baptism in your head i think when you're reading through these passages you know if if you confess with your mouth that jesus is lord and believe in your heart that god raised him from the dead you will be saved assuming you're baptized you know with the heart you believe and you're justified and with the mouth you confess and are saved you go assuming back and you're baptized can you go back and repeat that you cut out sorry darn it i was i was on a roll i know you were <laughs> and i hate so like, let me read it the way I'd have to read it if I was to say baptism saves, is, as I understand me. it. Huh? If you, were, you read it as if you were me. Or, or if I was me thinking baptism saves. I'll put it that way. This is how it works in my head. Yeah. If, if I, I would have to read it this way. You know, if you confess with your mouth and believe Jesus is Lord, or that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, assuming you're baptized. Uh-huh. Right. Verse 10, if... For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one is one confesses and is saved, assuming they're baptized, because with the water baptism, you're actually getting saved. Um, verse 11, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him and gets baptized will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Uh, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him with baptism. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord and is baptized will be saved. Like that's That's how I kind of have to keep Gotcha. filtering it if I do it that way. Um, so okay. what's your response to that part of what I've shared? Um, I would say that uh, you would do the same thing, but in a different way. So in the way that you are reading it and you're assuming baptism, I would also say 
um, that you would that you read that and you assume uh, repentance, even though repentance isn't mentioned here. Now, earlier you said uh, that in order for somebody to be saved, repentance and faith has to take place. Yeah. Well, if we're if we're going strictly by the text, and I'm reading into baptism with regards to this text. You're also reading into repentance, even though it's not mentioned. So, if I were to read it the way that you read it, you would it would be um, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved, assuming that they've repented. Um, and then uh, you say, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame, for there's no distinction. You read for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, assuming that there's repentance. Now. Uh, maybe I I don't know I don't see in this text that repentance is specifically mentioned with regards to this, but you would assume that someone who has uh-huh. believed and someone who has confessed would be repentance, but that's you assuming that that's taken place. So I don't okay. see any distinction to. I think you bring up a really important criticism, and it it needs to be discussed, right? So, um, my view in short is that repentance is is included in this passage. Um, And it's not included because I assume it, because I theologically need it, but it's included because the acts described in this passage describe a repentant person. And they do not describe someone who has been baptized. They describe a repentant person. Um, So anyway, it says, uh, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, okay, obviously this is genuine confession, right? You're not lying. (laughs) <laughs> there's this is I think we could both agree this is not just say the phrase Jesus is Lord and you're saved if you think that that works then you're something seriously wrong right um it's a genuine phrase Jesus is what Lord he's the boss of my life that that absolutely includes repentance no I I, I agree okay uh, so you see repentance in this in this actual formula that we're being given for salvation this is faith and repentance but Right here. What I'm saying is, if we're if we're strictly going by the criticism that you laid against me, that or not me, but assuming that baptism is needed, uh-huh. or that baptism has already taken place, then you would still be doing the same thing with repentance. It's not placed. Now I understand. Now I agree with you. I agree with you on on this issue that um, that hey that just as uh, I, I w- it would be silly for me to say contextually that on these points that that uh, someone could um, well let me rephrase it this way you would say that someone who that just because repentance isn't specifically mentioned here in this passage like the word repentance isn't mentioned here in this passage you would never tell somebody that they couldn't that they would they couldn't repent and still be saved Right. Like if I were studying, I don't know if you said that the way you you meant to to say it. So, like if I were studying, if you were studying with me, and I was just some Joe Blow off the street, and I said, "Well, hey, right here it says, you know, I need to uh, believe and confess to be saved. Do I need to repent?" Your answer would be, "Yeah, you need to repent." Mm -hmm. And you would say, and, "And if I came back to you and said, well, it's not mentioned there in that text. There's nothing about repentance that's seen in." Or, or the words not mentioned. This idea of repentance isn't mentioned here. You would simply say, "Well, obviously, it would be based upon what's being talked about here." 
right? Yes. I, I have two cases for repentance. I presented one. There's another one, which is the idea that genuine faith does involve repentance necessarily. Yeah. Um, and that description of faith that we get in scripture necessarily involves repentance. So believing in the Lord requires repentance because it's a turning to the Lord. So that I gave the first half of that, which was when you call Jesus Lord, that's definitely repentance when but, you, um, but there's the other side of the coin is faith, just simply faith does include repentance yeah. necessarily Christian faith. So my point, my, the point that I'm driving at Mike is this, is that just because um, a a piece of um, a the piece of repentance isn't specifically mentioned in this passage doesn't mean that it's not uh, not a a position a a heart position uh, it doesn't mean that it doesn't need to be present for salvation to take place. You would say a repentant heart is something that is it is necessary in order for someone to be saved. Yeah, and and I think that um, it's so we agree on clearly included in the in the in calling Jesus Lord. But I also think that's one point. The second point is repentance is like literally inseparable from faith. You cannot separate the two. You you cannot have repentance toward God without faith and you can't have faith you know in God without repentance uh that these two are literally necessary meaning that if the bible says faith is all you need to be saved that in that concept of faith necessarily is included repentance so and that's that that allows me to interpret the scriptures consistently in that regard i i can consistently say believing in the lord is more than intellectual belief it's a turning of your heart toward God that includes repentance. Uh, so, and, and that would, that would I think, overrule your objection in this passage. Do you think faith and repentance um, go into believer's baptism? Not, not necessarily the way that I understand it, but the way that, that you understand it. Do you think faith and repentance has anything to do with believer's baptism at all? I, I think it's almost assumed when you use the phrase believers baptism. <laughs> yes. Well okay, maybe I, yeah. well, okay, maybe I'm begging the question there, but someone who, um, but you get what I'm saying. Like you wouldn't say that those two entities are, nece are, are separate and apart from why someone on your theology who is saved, it's not, it's not separate from why they might be baptized. Would it be? Like they're being baptized, not just to identify with Christ, but also it is a part of uh, this. It, it is this outward working of this faith and this repentance. Yeah. So is is faith and repentance part of baptism? Yes. Is baptism part water baptism part of faith and repentance? No, not in that necessary sense. No. So someone doesn't. So I, I guess. So it's like it's like is a wedding ceremony is a wedding ceremony required for a couple to get married? No. Is it standard? Is it normal? Do they usually get married very near the wedding ceremony? Actually, technically, they usually get married before or after, uh, as we sign the documents or they go and they get it done at the courthouse. But yeah. the ceremony is very important, and to devalue the ceremony is to devalue the wedding. Mm -hmm. I view baptism very much the same way. Okay. So, all right. Um, so. So I guess what what I'm 
what I'm driving at here is that, uh, from my position, is in the same way that you would, I don't want to say assume, but in the same way that you would read this passage in light of repentance being there based on what is being said, I, I would just say the same thing with regards to baptism, that just because it's not mentioned. Oh, I lost you. But it has been mentioned. So you said, the last thing I heard you say was, I believe the same thing in regards to baptism just because it's not mentioned. Yeah, just because it's not mentioned here doesn't mean that it hasn't taken place. And actually, and we've talked about Romans 6, I think it's already been mentioned in 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 Romans 6. And so my, my point is is this, is that, well, I, I would agree with you that repentance is, is seen in this passage, even though it's not mentioned. I would do also you, say— Do you agree with me for the, my, my reasons for why I see repentance here? I have, I have two reasons. Jesus is Lord plus the idea that biblical faith does include repentance necessarily. Would you agree with those reasons? No, I, I would I would agree that the mentioning of Jesus as Lord is pretty, pretty key to, to what goes on here. And I would also say that uh, for your second reason with regards to repent, repent, biblical faith requires repentance as well. I mean, I, I don't disagree with that. Okay. So what we would have to look for then to, to now bring baptism into the picture, we can't just say, Mike, you see repentance here, therefore baptism's automatically there. Like that yeah. would, to me, be um, a real big a mistake, you know, in studying the scriptures. So it would be, are there parallel reasons to see baptism in the passage the way I see repentance? Meaning I have a direct phrase that relates to repentance and I have a concept that's in literally inseparable from repentance, which is faith or yeah. belief. Um, do I have those types of reasons to read baptism into Romans 10? No. So I don't see any of them. Do you see any? I do. I, I see, I see one there. Um, and if, and if, if we can, can we move into kind of the, the, I don't want to say freewheel, but the freewheeling segment of our discussion, because I think it's important to verse 13. Yeah. All right. Taking the gloves off. There you go. go. <laughs> okay, so uh, you know, please go ahead. And what we're going to do right now for people viewing is what we've had is we've had um, we each had three passages. We each brought up one at a time and would share our point and then and then have a back and forth conversation, trying to stay on topic. Now we're going to sort of open it up to and this and that. So we're not going to restrict ourselves to just discussing, say, Romans ten. We're going to open it up to all of this little other points. Uh, so please, uh, Dean, go ahead. What's the first thing you wanted to share there? So uh, with regards to Romans 10, 13, uh, I think that you do have a connection here. And, and I, admittedly, oh, it, I already know where you're going to go. Okay. Sorry. I'm sorry. Please go ahead. Where, where am I going, Mike? Um, and repent. You'd be baptized calling on the name of the Lord. No? Yeah, absolutely. Ah, see? <laughs> so, so let me ask you this question. And, and this was a question that I, I honestly, I had, uh, pre-prepared um, in Acts in Acts 22. Uh, now I don't and I and you have logos. You might be able to look something else up, but it seems here. Um, I guess maybe maybe the question I want to ask first before I get to the connection to Romans 13 is where in this section in Acts chapter 22 do you believe that uh, Paul was or Saul was was saved. Was it in um, verses seven through nine? Well, first, just so that our, because I feel like we might lose our audience here. 
<clears throat> um, I will not argue with you on it, but what is, give us your conclusion if you would. And okay. Then, awesome. And then, so, and then we'll walk through the passage. So it seems to me that the only other, and, and once again, you've got logos, you could probably look this up better than I have, but I haven't been able to find it. Um, that this phrase calling on his name is, is seen, uh, at least in the new Testament, uh, in two spots, Acts twenty two sixteen, and Romans chapter 10. Um, now I don't know if it's anywhere else. I, I've looked, I haven't found that I don't have the, the tech to do that. And so he says here in verse 16, now, why do you wait, rise and be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on his name. So it seems to me that in Acts chapter 16, uh, the washing away of the sins is the calling on the name. And I think that in order to be consistent with the phrase and what the phrase is connected to, you would have to ask the question in Acts chapter 10, okay, well, what does he mean by calling on his name and where is that else used in scripture? Mm -hmm. At least in the New Testament. So that that would be my, my rebuttal to 10 about baptism. Um, so your point is, <clears throat> I'm trying to understand your your point in a nutshell. Your um, not that you didn't express it. I think maybe I just got confused. So Paul, I'm I'm thinking of how to say your point to you. What what would you say is your point? <laughs> okay. My point is yeah. that to, and to understand Acts 10 uh, with regards to baptism is this. Paul uses a phrase in 13 that says. Uh, you, you do think you, you do these things you're calling on his name right you, you mean uh, Romans 10 right yeah so Romans 10. 10. okay Romans. so Romans 10 13 whoever calls the name of the Lord shall be saved yeah your interpretation for that comes from Acts 22. yeah my interpretation for the meaning of that phrase uh, is Acts 22:16 and where he says and now why do you wait rise and be baptized wash away your sins calling on his name. And it seems to me that you can't separate the washing away of your sins with the calling on his name. The the calling on his name is a direct response to the washing of your sins. And so in or, or it's the or it's the way it happens. What? Just uh I call on the Lord's name doesn't mean I'm I've been washed, so now I call on his name, or rather that in the washing away of my sins, I am calling on his name. Yeah, there's 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 a connection between the two. Is, is, yeah, is what I'm saying. Yeah. And so I think that uh, that is significant in looking at Romans chapter 10, verse 13. Because yeah. you're left with asking the question, okay, well, uh, what mm -hmm. what does he mean here by calling on his name? And now now you, yeah. you, have, you have Logos Tech. I, is, is there another place where... Uh, that phrase in the New Testament, calling on his name, is is used outside of Acts twenty two sixteen. Uh, well, there is in the Old Testament. That's what Paul's citing is is Joel. Okay. So, or in Romans, he's citing Joel. But let me, because we brought up Acts now, and yeah. this is, uh, I think we have to. We it's like the elephant in the room, right? Yeah. Here's Paul, and it's like, isn't Paul getting saved when he gets baptized in this passage? Well, um, at least that would be what what I would think is implied, right? Well, that's just to answer Acts 10. I guess my question with regards to Acts 22 is where in Acts 22, as he recounts this scene, where do you think Paul was was saved? Well, let's just say I don't I don't actually know for sure, but let's say that he's saved at the moment of his water baptism. Like I'm just gonna totally grant you that. Okay. So I and, and I don't have a problem with that. <laughs> 
Like what if Paul at the moment of his baptism, his water baptism was when after days of thinking and, and after seeing the vision of Christ, he, that's the moment where he said, I'm going to step out and I'm going to put my faith and trust in Christ. I am going to call on him for forgiveness. Um, and, uh, and at that moment he gets saved. The question is, does that, does that translate into, and that's the only way it can happen? Well, it, it seems that Ananias, I mean, if we, if we're going to say, um, I think that that is is the point. Is that Anna and I? I mean, Jesus tells him to go down. Um, it says here, uh, where is it? Um, light, and he says, "Rise and go into Damascus, and there you be told all that is appointed for you to do." And Ananias tells him, "Hey, receive your sight. Um, he's appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear his voice of his mouth, and you will be a witness." Uh, for him to everyone, what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Mm-hmm. Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So, I mean, it seems yeah. there. I mean, it wouldn't make any sense if Paul was saved prior to his baptism. I'm not fighting you on that. No, I know. I'm just, <laughs> yeah. I'm just making a point. You know, I'm going, Lord. hey, my plain reading of that, and I have not done a whole lot of work. When exactly was Paul saved? Like I heard some people say, well, he said, who are you Lord? And because he said, Lord, he called Jesus Lord. He was saved. I think that's ridiculous. I think that you have a great case off the cuff for saying Paul got saved, positionally saved at the moment or very near the moment of his water baptism. And that Ananias instructed him in that fashion. I'd, I'd go even further and say that Paul that, that Ananias says that the way in which Paul is going to wash away his sins is through his baptism. Okay. Okay. Oh, now I just, I just finally got your point. At least I think your point. Are you saying that the phrase calling on the name of the Lord is synonymous with baptism? It is, it is connected to it. Very tricky. <laughs> I, to it, and, and like I said, you might have, You've got Logos software. I, I, I don't. I have Logos, so don't mess with me. <laughs> okay. Do what? I said I have Logos, so don't mess with me because I will gotcha. use my artificial gotcha. intelligence software to prove <laughs> okay, you're there wrong. You go. And and so and and I'm just making the point. Yeah. Uh, just for the the for the not directed at you, but for the point of the audience that if uh, if Paul is, is saved between verses six and nine, uh, then it doesn't make any sense why Ananias would then come along and say, uh, oh yeah, by the way, you still have sins you need to deal with. So take care of that. That just doesn't make, that. I don't think that that makes sense. They still have sins. I don't see how that relates to the issue though. Um... No, like if we're going to say that in this section, that and I'm not saying that you're saying this, but for the listening audience, like those people that will say, "Well, he was saved right here when he said, who are you, Lord?'" Or when he said, uh, uh, "Who are you? <laughs> what, shall do, what, what shall I do, Lord?" Yeah. Um, if he's yeah. saved there, then it doesn't make sense for Ananias to come along and say, "Actually, you still have some sins that you need to be washed away." Mm-hmm. So. See, I, see, this makes me feel like really smart for not fighting you on this. <laughs> well, 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 I was hoping you would. Yeah. <laughs> it, you could, yeah. Well, there you go. Um, so I, that, uh, yeah, I, I think consider. 
there's probably a lot of examples throughout the history of time, maybe maybe not necessarily all in scripture, but just in time of people who were literally saved at the moment of their baptism. But that doesn't exactly help uh, your case. Your case is a lot harder than my case. My case is I only need one guy, you know, that that was saved apart from the act of baptism to prove my case right, so to speak. You need everyone who is saved to have had it happen at the moment of their baptism to prove you're right, because that's that's the exclusivity of your view. Um, so in a sense, Paul's Paul's case is is interesting and neat, and I think it's beautiful. I, I wouldn't argue with it. I just don't. I just don't think that we draw from that any clear teaching that water baptism is inseparable from that thing of getting washed of your sins. Although it corresponds to it, it relates to it, but it is not inseparable from it. Then what, what other conclusion could you draw from that text then, Mike, is my question. Well, that was it. I mean, Paul, hey, if someone's like come to the realization of Christ and they're like, what do I do? Tell them, dude, put your faith and trust in Christ. Call on the name of the Lord. Get water baptized. Wash away your sins. I don't have a problem with saying that. But if you then say, um, and if you don't get water baptized, but you do call on Christ and you do trust in him, you're not saved until you do. Well, until let me ask you the water. Well, then, then I would then I would pose this question with regards to that. Um, if, if Paul said in verse six, or if in response, um, let me look in Acts nine real quick. Um, Cause I think that's the second or the first account of, of this uh, scenario. Um, uh, let's see here. Uh, in verse 18, it says that those scales fell from his eyes and he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. So it's clear that Paul did that. But let me ask you this question. If Paul uh, if Paul didn't do that, would his sins have been washed away? If he didn't get if he didn't get water baptized, if, if Ananias says, why do you wait, rise and be baptized, washing away your sins, calling on his name? And Paul didn't do that. I don't know. I, 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 I'm not trying to be evasive, but I really just don't know. Um, okay. Is it possible that Paul could have, if if he for some reason was not water baptized, I could see him getting saved. But if he, you know, he has a direct messenger from the Lord telling him, here's how I want you to respond. What does it say about him if he rejects it and says, I don't want to get baptized, but I believe, but I don't want to get baptized. Like to me, this implies something seriously wrong. So I don't want to really go there. Okay. And create justification for someone who might be rebelling against God. Gotcha. Um, all right. So if you've got a passage, I'll entertain that. I've said all I need to say on Acts 22. Okay. Um, so this related to originally to Romans 10, 13, which says, you know, whoever calls on the, name of the Lord will be saved. And you related that to Acts, um, calling on the name of the Lord. I have two problems with that relation. One is in Acts 22, it doesn't, it's just an assumption that the phrase calling on the name of the Lord is therefore always related to baptism. I think that's just an assumption. Um, I don't think you can establish that with the clear teaching of scripture, but I think you can refute it with it, which you mentioned with my massive amount of software <laughs> abilities. Um, that phrase, calling on the name of the Lord. So Genesis 4.26, it says, then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Um, that would be a reference to something that happened with, without reference to baptism. So, uh, but you, you would say that it's a, it's a, it's, appealing that that phrase calling on the name of the Lord is like appealing to God. Yeah. Right. Okay. I, I agree with that. I'm just simply saying in Acts twenty two sixteen, in his baptism, 
he was calling on the name of the Lord. Yes. I'm saying that men have never. Yeah. But you, but you, you want to create a, a connection between them that becomes inseparable. In the that's, next- that's where I disagree. And I can show you that they're separate by quoting other passages that use it. Okay. So with that, Sorry, I'll let you finish your passages. I should have. I should. Okay, I'll just share a couple. So in Genesis twenty-one, it says, "Then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at, in Beersheba, and there called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God." So we have another example. Um, you, the, the phrase, you know, calling on God, calling on God's name, um, it happens a lot in the Scripture. Um, in fact, you just. You, you, you have to see the connection between Romans 10, 13 and the Old Testament teaching call on, calling on the name of the Lord and to realize this is really speaking not of baptism, but of, of a person who is turning to God to call upon him for salvation. That, that to me seems to be pretty clear. Now in Paul's, <clears throat> when Paul called on the name of the Lord, he also got baptized because baptism is related to salvation. It's the first act of a believer. It makes total sense. Um, but to say that it is therefore necessary is is something i have a problem with so is there any other point in the new testament that that phrase calling on the name of the lord is used outside of Acts 22 and romans um so let's look here um acts 221 we were actually i think may have read this originally it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the lord shall be saved again this is uh joel this is a quote of the Old Testament, yeah. Um, and they <clears throat> and they stoned uh, Stephen in Acts seven fifty nine, and they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, "Lord Jesus, receive my spirit." Um, Acts twenty two sixteen is the verse you referenced earlier. Romans ten thirteen, I, I we already talked about. First Corinthians one two, um, he writes to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ, called to be saints, who. Um, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. This is an interesting passage because it's it's a present active calling on. They're continually calling on God. And so it couldn't. Uh, I think you got muted. Check your yeah. mic. Okay. Yeah, I heard you. Um, okay. So let me just real quick finish my point. First Corinthians 1, 2. This is a, a present active calling on God and therefore couldn't refer to a moment of baptism but refers to someone who's continually calling on God, which is an attitude of faith uh, that the believer has. Um, but there's that initial appeal and then further appeals that will it's, take place, right? Yeah, it's like it starts and it just keeps yeah. on going. I'm with you. And then uh, the last one is sec- uh, 2 Timothy 2.22. It's the same thing. It's a continual act. <clears throat> it says, flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Um, they're they're continuing to call on God. It's not, a, and they're not continually getting baptized. So we yeah, so no. we can't make them synonymous. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so <clears throat> all right, I had something else to say. Um, okay, um, is Abraham in your view? Is Abraham was he saved without being baptized? I, I, forgive me for the rhetorical question. I just want to. I'm trying to walk us through something here. Um, no, there's there's no instance in the Old Testament where we see Abraham being uh, being baptized. No. Okay, so so he, <clears throat> pardon me. So he was he was definitely saved without being baptized. Not to speak of whether he was filled with the Spirit and all that at the time. Um. Now, 
Abraham is our model for salvation in Romans. Okay. And, and Paul specifically brings him up in Romans 4 <clears throat> to demonstrate that circumcision isn't required, like that's his point, and that faith is the thing that's required. That's that's his whole case in Romans 4. And then to then draw that out and say, and this is valid today. This is not some big line between the Old and New Testament. No, no, no. Salvation is the same throughout time, and it's it's faith. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, uh, and so I would say Abraham, for the same reason Paul used Abraham to speak of salvation apart from circumcision just by faith, I think that I can use Abraham to be my model for salvation apart from baptism. Um, and uh, and I'll, I'll say this, that, that Abraham, would you agree with me? Abraham has now entered into the new covenant and the fullness of knowing Christ as of today. As of today? Well, I think I think Hebrews 11 lays that out. So is, is that a yes or a... <clears throat> that's, a, that's an affirmative that Abraham at this point is in is in paradise, so to speak. And understands the and has been had the new covenant fully revealed to him. Yeah, and so he's he's a now a participant in this new covenant that we're part of, but he was never baptized, correct? So there are participants in the new covenant that were never baptized. Um, I, I'm not necessarily seeing the connection how a dead Abraham is now all of a sudden under or. Or not under the because God is not the God of the dead, but the living. No, I, I understand what you're <laughs> he saying. Is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the current position of you know this is speaking from Jesus here. Yeah. I'm quoting Jesus here. Uh, the 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 current state of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is is relevant to this issue. I don't I don't necessarily know how their their current state. Sur surely they're alive in paradise. Mm -hmm. They've already uh, ex uh, ex experienced. Um, uh, this idea that they're Hebrews eleven kind of lays it out that they're already they're already there in in paradise. They're not beholden to the. They might have participated in the reward under under the new covenant, but they they're certainly not certainly not bound by. Uh, I, I just, I'm not necessarily. Yeah, I can play. I'll play this a different way. Let's say we flash forward. You know. Um, however many years to the to where we were in our forever state. You know, the new heavens, new earth, and all that. And in that place, dwelling with us in the body of Christ, in the glory of God, are individuals who are all in Christ, but who only some of which were baptized. Is that not the reality that Scripture lays out? No, I, th I think you're you're definitely going to have that instance. I mean, we see that uh, you know Abraham wasn't. We see that Isaac wasn't. I don't have any record of Jacob being that. But that's also um, there. There is a distinction there with regards to uh, that that. A covenant by which they were under while they were on the earth. Uh -huh. um, but but, but that, that's why I'm jumping to the eternal. So we could just go, hey, here we all under the same covenant, not all yeah. baptized. Like that's just a simple well, reality. But but to your point, I'd I'd make one caveat to your to your description that Abraham is an example of someone being saved apart from baptism. Abraham was saved apart from the law. Yeah. Not that Paul's not mentioning baptism. His direct context is the law. But but I see what you're saying. But, okay, so and my point was <clears throat> that in Paul's logic, Abraham was saved the same way that we are saved. That's by really faith. important by, in Romans. By faith, I agree. By faith, yeah. There's by no miraculous work that can that can save you. I agree with that. Yeah, and I'd say that's consistent with my view, not not the view that baptism is required. Okay. Um, now, now, on that point that you've made, um, 
then what do you say to something like um, something like uh, Hebrews chapter 11, where you have these by faith passages? Yeah. Responses, right? So like by faith, um, uh, Abel offered, you know, by faith, um, Abraham went, right? So if, if Abraham if God calls Abraham to another place and he does it by, by faith, that's a faith, that's a faith response. If he doesn't go out, then is that really faith? No, yeah, and no, it's not really faith. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. in the same way that, that, um, in the same way that you would see, um, confession, I would see, I would see baptism in the same way that one would be required to repent. I would say one would be required to, to be baptized, right. For the remission of sin is that I don't see baptism as some meritorious work that someone's doing in order to gain favor with God. Uh, it, it's something that takes place uh, on, on the basis. That's a faith response, no different than confession or repentance. I mm -hmm. guess. So my my perspective on that is uh, here. I think Hebrews actually makes a different point than that. So, what what did Abraham do by faith? Oh well, he was called out and he went out. You know, what did Noah do? Oh, he built the ark. What did Sarah do? She trusted God. You know, for receiving a child, um, and the and the list goes on. Notice that all of them had just varied responses to God. There's nothing here about when God reveals truth to you, you have to have the exact same response every time, and it's baptism. That is very much assumed on the passage. That this, now, this is consistent with James, who talks about how uh, faith that does not work is dead. He's like saying, look, if you have faith, it's going to be evident in your life. There will be a response that you can see represented by the faith that you have to, yeah. to then, let me finish my point, please, to, to then say that that response is baptism. That is not, um, that is not justified by those passages. But that's not my. That's not the point that I'm making. Mike. the point that I'm making is that if Abraham says that he has faith, right? Hypothetically, this hypothetical. Mm -hmm. Abraham says that he has faith, but doesn't go out. Then it's not really faith, right? If Abraham's or, or if um, uh, let's see here, if I, by I agree, yeah. like so, my point is, a, a faith that saves is a faith that obeys in the same way that one is, and here's kind of the, the umbrella that I put these things under just for clarification. Like I completely agree that someone has to believe. I completely agree that someone has to repent or, or, or that someone has to confess. Uh, and, and then I, I think that's where most people in the religious world would, or at least in the, in the umbrella of Christianity would stop. But I'm saying what scripture teaches is that there's that, that baptism uh, as, as well. Um, and so that, that's just the, the point that I'm, I'm making. I see your point about Abraham. It's a, it's a good point. Uh, it's definitely something that, um, individually, personally, I have no problem saying it live that, that, that I need to go back and, and look at, I think you've made a, a, a fair point to that. So I'm right. I understand what you're saying. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. Here's now. I want to ask you some questions if I can. This relates to the 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 logic that comes when you say baptism is required for salvation. So um, these are not trick questions. It's kind of like when I was asking you about the thief on the cross trying to kind of you know the death of the testator, John's baptism. Like where does baptism come in, and 
all that, those types of things. So okay. here's a question though. Uh, this is now about the logic of, uh, of baptism and okay. faith and belief. Okay. Uh, now, I think it's fair to say faith includes repentance necessarily, but we know faith doesn't include baptism necessarily because we have examples of people who had faith that weren't baptized. So <laughs> you can't, you, you like, you can't say it includes them because we have Abraham and we have David and, and we have Elijah and we have, you name the number of guys. Um, we even have uh, Cornelius, which I still maintain as an example of a, a saved person without baptism. But here's my question for you. I'll grant you those for the sake of moving the conversation along. Okay. Go Thanks. back and hash that. Yeah. And, and we, we have your objections to, to all that. Um, yeah. Wrong as they are. And so, <laughs> so um, does, does somebody believe what Mike just said? <laughs> does somebody believe before they're baptized or do they believe somehow in baptism? Like baptism is, is synonymous with belief. So does faith come before baptism in a person's life? Um, well, I, I think that's a, an interesting uh, point that you've made. I think in Acts chapter 2, what we see is we have a group of people here who understand that what they've done is wrong. Mm -hmm. And they ask, well, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. Turn away from where you are. Move towards God. I think they firmly believe that Jesus is now the Messiah. And he's, and they say, hey, we've killed the Messiah. Obviously, there's a belief that takes place there. And they ask, hey, what shall we do? And there you go. You've, you've got it. Um, repent and be baptized. For the remission of sins, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, everybody else can look back at our discussion on Acts chapter 2. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't have an issue with someone saying having this this faith that Jesus uh, or have this belief that Jesus is, is the Christ. The question at hand, and I think this is the overarching point is at what point is that person pardoned? At what point is the blood of Jesus applied? Okay. That's a good question, but that's not the question I'm asking. Okay. Um, I'm trying to find out. Okay. Okay. Somebody, somebody comes to you and they tell you, I believe in Jesus. I repent of my sins. Dean, will you baptize me? Break. And you're like, gosh, uh, I can baptize you tomorrow at noon. <laughs> you know, like I can't do it today. My kid's sick. My, my wife needs my help with something. Sorry. And so um, what was that? Repeat that. You, you broke oh, I cut out. So someone comes to you, they say, Dean, I'm ready to get baptized. I believe in Jesus. I repent of my sins. I want to be saved. And so then you say, I can baptize you tomorrow. Like you couldn't, you can't do it in the moment. Here's the question, right? I, I'm not going where you might think I'm going. I, I might go there later, but um, okay. that moment right there when he comes to you says, I believe, is he really having belief? Like, or does he not really believe until the moment he's baptized? Is there such a thing as belief without baptism? I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about belief, genuine faith, like repentance and faith is, can that exist before baptism happens? Uh, I think you would, you would have to, uh, Number one, I would do it right then and there. That's besides well, the point. you might maybe you're maybe you're out of town. <laughs> gotcha. I, I drive back. No, all right. Enough being of being silly my, on my part. Um, no, I I think that that that, that person would say, uh, you know, yeah. I, as far as that question is, yeah, I think that that person has a, a as um, generally believed that Jesus is the Christ and has 
you know, is, is turning towards God with regards to that. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't disagree with your statement. Okay. So there, so there can be belief before baptism. I, I would agree with that. And I think that, that seems obvious. Um, so then isn't it fair to say, if I say to someone who let's say they're, they're, they're half an hour away and I'm half an hour away and we're going to meet in the middle and I'm going to baptize them mm-hmm. and they're on their way to get baptized. Now, if I'm, if I'm in your circle, if I'm in your crew that I, and they say to me, I'm scared I'll get in a car accident on my way to get baptized. Um, if that happens and I die on my way to baptism, am I saved? Uh, number one, um, I don't think that that's going to happen. Okay. But you know, you <laughs> deny my hypothetical, but I'm, <laughs> but, un- but hypothetically, <laughs> uh, but, but understand that why that's difficult for me to, to answer is because based upon my theology with regards to the providence of God, God's not going to disallow someone to be saved who wants to be saved. So, uh, well, everybody I, wants to be forgiven in the sense, like nobody, everybody in hell is like, I don't want to be here. They're still going, you know, you, you understand what I'm saying? Like someone, someone's not, God is not going to disallow uh, a penitent heart uh, or, or someone who has a desire to seek after him genuinely to not be saved. So in the, in the hypothetical that you set up, um, I, I don't, I don't know that I don't think that, that God for someone who wants to be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins and God knows their heart is going to be like, I think sovereignly and providentially, I'm going to let you get into a car wreck. Okay. But if he did, Okay, but, because but this this happens. This but, I mean, this in in all this. I, I don't have a biblical argument here. I just have life arguments, right? People do get saved on their deathbeds and die without getting baptized. Maybe because the person who shared the gospel with them didn't believe baptism was required, as the majority of Christians, right? And they they and so they didn't even tell them you you better get baptized. They just pray with them and they preach the gospel. And the person was like, I want I want the Lord. I want to know Him. Mm-hmm. So anecdotally, this happens a lot. Um, and so in your, I think in your theological view, even though they have faith, they're not saved. Anecdotally, I, I can argue the exact opposite of opposite of what, what you've suggested. I've, I've known, I don't know of anybody and, and I could be, I could, could be wrong, at least in my own personal experience. I don't know of anybody who's wanted to be baptized and not had the opportunity have that take place. I think that might be the wrong standard. The standard shouldn't be wanted to be baptized, but couldn't. It should be put faith and trust in Christ and died without having been baptized. Yeah. And and I think I think to to the point also of, of your of your illustration, I think uh whether you believe that person was saved or wasn't saved uh with regards to the deathbed confession, s- still only only uh even in that scenario, you can't say with with. I mean, I don't know with a hundred hundred percent certainty that that person was was saved. Maybe they're saying, "Hey, I'm doing this just to kind of cover my tracks and one last ditch effort to to be saved." I don't know. I, I I don't. I have. I struggle with those types of scenarios. Given one, uh, the the judgment of the heart that you make either way. But also, two, um, 
at least in my experience, the rarity of those situations that take place, that those are not, and three, the, the uh, lack of scenarios like that that are seen um, in Scripture. So I just struggle to answer that question. Um, okay, well, I, <clears throat> uh, I understand the struggle to answer the question. I think part of it might be because the options you're presented with are either A, that scenario just doesn't happen um, mm-hmm. or B. Okay. They, they believed they repented, they put faith and trust in Christ and then they didn't go to heaven. They, they're going to die in their sins because they weren't water baptized. Like that's, those are the options. Either it doesn't happen or if it does happen, they're unsaved, even though they have um, believed in the Lord, they've, mm-hmm. they've, they've confessed Christ as Lord with their mouth, believed in him with their heart. Yeah. And they're still not saved. And to me, this is one of the, you can't ignore this issue, right? Like this is, this is one of the central issues dealing with saying baptism is not just important and, and, and desirable and commanded, but it's essential for salvation. Um, is that we, okay. It's, it's easy for you, for you, if you don't have these scenarios, but somebody watching this will Mm -hmm. remember their, their, their dad who, while on hospice gave his life to Christ. And didn't get baptized. Um, they'll remember their their grandma, you know, who who is in that exact scenario. They'll remember the time they ran up to the car accident, and the guy was on the ground, and he's bleeding and crying, and he knows he was hearing Billy Graham on the radio when the car accident happened, and he's going, oh, "I need Jesus, please pray for me." And and the guy got saved on his deathbed, and mm-hmm. they'll see, and I think they'll see you going. I don't think that really happens. Yeah, no, no, I mean, because it, because my theology becomes uncomfortable if it does. Well, I mean, the, the same thing could be, would be, would be turned around, you know, with regards to your theology, because let's, I mean, you can make up the hypothetical of, well, let's say your the, the same scenario takes place uh, at the very place of worship that, that you have. Maybe it's not, a, maybe it's a deathbed, maybe it's not a deathbed, but uh, you, you know that, for instance, someone who has a desire to be saved and they're hearing this and they say, you know what, this sounds like, you know, the truth. Maybe I, I, I want to do this. And I think that, and then they have a heart attack and die and they haven't done that. They haven't met those requirements. The rules would, would still apply. Would they not? Yes. That person goes to hell. Like, and now here, I'm, oh. <laughs> I'm not trying to be harsh. No, no, I'm trying I, to be, I'm yeah, trying so, to say. So the same scenario uh, but let me you know, almost before someone decides that they're going to place their faith and say, you know, this sounds like the truth. This, this sounds like something that, you know, I want to, and then they die. You, you said that they go to hell. So why is the standard different? Why would the standard be any different for you than it would be for me with regards to my theology is what I'm, I'm not, I'm meeting the standard. <laughs> That's the difference. I'm willing to bold faced. I'm willing to grant your hypothetical and tell you what my theology says about it. Yeah. So I'm not at all trying to be harsh. Right. But if no. someone has not had that internal faith response to God yet, and they're going, I probably should, I call that conviction. Right. But they have not responded in faith and they die in that moment. I'm like tragedy. But the reality is you did not respond in faith to Christ. You are going to be judged for your sins and condemned in the sight of God. And that's, that, that's my theology. Now, if I was your theology, I would just admit it. I hold the, the, same, the same position then is that, that if repentance uh, and forgiveness of sins is to be preached, 
for the forgiveness of sins and what and and that takes place in, in being buried in, in baptism then 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 why then i don't know why i would would shine away shy away from that standard no matter how big of a hypothetical tragic situation i mean the person on the deathbed i mean uh have have their animals been killed in a terrible accident too prior to the situation as well i mean how 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 big of a tragic hypothetical are we going to build oh so okay so what i'm doing is actually not trying to build a tragedy um because i, I can see how it can come off that way uh, i'm not trying to create a tragedy here um what i'm trying to do is draw draw you to the uncomfortable <laughs> point that it that says my theology seems to disagree with the core gospel message of belief and so so giving you a scenario where someone has you said first off you can't have true faith without being baptized yet so then i'm saying okay you're already granted you've already granted that that can happen someone can believe before they're baptized and then i'm saying and then if something were to happen to them but after belief before baptism are they saved and your theology has to say no they're not well what let me clarify what i mean by belief the belief that that i'm speaking of is the same belief that's seen in acts chapter 2 verse 36 and 37 let all the house of israel know that they've crucified you know jesus christ who is who's the sign of rough paraphrase okay well then what shall we do it seems that they believe that they certainly believe that they've yeah, i'm not we're not talking about factual beliefs we're talking about they believe in christ Someone believes in Jesus Christ. They've, they have faith and repentance. They've not yet been baptized. Are they saved? I, Mike, the standard is not going to change from the standard for Acts 2, chapter 36, 37, 38 is not going to change now. I mean, we, okay, at what point in Acts chapter 2, 38, 36, 37, 38, do you think that they believed uh, that Jesus was the Messiah? It's impossible to say because it is literally speaking of a crowd <laughs> who all would have had. So as a crowd, they were like, what do we do? But the scripture doesn't declare what they believed when each of them believed it. It just doesn't say it. Okay. So as a whole, in a summation of the crowd, individual people are part of that crowd. Uh, would the question, what shall we do? Give us any type of indication when they believed that they had crucified the Messiah. Oh, that they crucified the Messiah? Yeah, they believed at that moment. Yes. Okay. So they, but, question, but hold on. We would you grant me this? There's a difference between, oh no, I crucified the Messiah and having faith in the Messiah. But they believed that he was the Messiah, is my point. But wait, did you do you see the difference between those two things though? That's I don't see that there's a different difference. Okay, well the demons believe and tremble. That would be, oh no, I crucified the Messiah. <laughs> um no. But I trust in him is different is is more than that. Okay, so okay, so at the moment of repentance and baptism, is that the point at which they said, "Oh, well, now I have faith in him." Um, at the moment of repentance, yes, it doesn't say whether they got baptized at th that day or not. It just doesn't say. Don't say that. It says, "And that day, three thousand souls were added to the church." So they were saved that day. They certainly they were. Were they all baptized that day? Yeah. Did, did half of them get baptized and the other half were the next day because they ran out of time? Well, you don't know how many were in the crowd, but at least 3,000 okay. obeyed that. That's my yeah. point. Okay. So, but I think we're asking questions of that passage that don't relate. So I think that um, the, the theology creates not just an emotionally awkward moment of real faith without salvation between the time of believing and the time of being baptized, but it creates a theological problem 
of, but the Bible says this brings salvation. Like I believe, I trust in Christ. I'm, I am saved. Um, and then it's like, but not until you get baptized. So some people, their solution, because I didn't know where you go with this. Some, some people say um, baptism uh, is the same thing as faith. You don't actually really believe until you're baptized. I've, there's several problems with that, um, but that wasn't your view. Your, your view was, no, they believe, later they get baptized. After they believe and they get baptized, they're actually saved. Now you're secure in Christ. Before that, you're, you're still unsaved, even though you trust, even though you have faith. Well, I, I I hate to I hate to be belaboring the point, but um, you know the the point in which I'm I'm seeking to make is this: is that when one hears the gospel, um, there is a point at which they believe that the gospel is true. They say, "Ah, that right there is true," and the response to that belief that the gospel is true is repentance and baptism for the forgiveness of sins is what I'm making. So don't hear me say, uh, well, they're saved uh, at this moment in which they necessarily believe that the gospel is true. They're saved at the moment in which the blood is applied. And I think that scripture teaches that the blood is applied at the moment of baptism for the remission of sins is Acts chapter 2, 38. And so that's why I make the analogy to, to the group there in Acts chapter 36. They believe, so if, if, they believe that the message of what Peter is saying is true. That's why they ask, what do we do? We believe that this message is true. Mm-hmm. And that's why you receive the message, were baptized that day, and 3,000 were added to the church. That's Acts 2, uh, 41, 42. So, I mean, I don't know if we're going to be able to get any further than where we are. With yeah. our- but if I could, if I could ask you one question, yeah, yes or no, or if you want to qualify it, um, I'll probably you- qualify it. <laughs> being honest, have you stopped beating your mother? That's what I want to know. <laughs> um, no, um, the question is, um, f- true or false, uh, faith in Christ is enough for salvation. Yes. True. So that you think that's true. True. Okay. And then, um, if someone <laughs> that was easy. Question, if someone believes has faith in Christ but has not yet been baptized, are they saved? That is not the depiction of uh, faith in the New Testament. Let's see. There's. It seems but, like we're. But seeing... I thought you already agreed that there is a scenario where there's a space of time between faith and baptism. Okay, there's a space. In an individual. Okay, so it seems like we're equivocating uh, the these two ty- these this thing called faith, right? At one point we're equivocating faith with, oh yeah, that's true. The other point that we're equivocating faith is at the moment of the faith that saves, right? So there's there's a that's point not what I'm doing. <laughs> no way, man. I'm only talking about yeah. tr- I trust in Christ. Well, okay. So not not just I believe it's true. I trust in him. And that point is made and, and that faith that you're speaking of, the point where I believe that it's true and I've submitted myself to Jesus, uh, I think that that is clearly depicted in Acts chapter 2, uh, 36, 37, 38. That faith, there's a point in which someone says, okay, hey, that's true. I would call that, okay, maybe I need to qualify it. Maybe I would say that that's, uh, 
the belief that the gospel is true, and then the faith that proceeds from that is the one that repents and is baptized. So our view then is actually closer than it was, I feel, 10 minutes ago on Acts. I'm going, yeah, they had intellectual assent to Jesus being Messiah. That doesn't mean, that doesn't tell me whether or not they had faith in him. Okay. Um, they did eventually have faith in him, 3,000 of them at least, right? But anyhow, um, what I was trying to draw there, because I feel like we just, whoop, just kind of went around it, was that you're... You're, you're saying faith is enough for salvation. Yes. And I go, but what about that time when someone's believing and they have not yet been baptized and you're telling them you believe, but that's your faith. That's not enough. You have to get baptized. Like this is the simple formula of, of baptism is essential is that faith is not enough. But, but I include baptism as a part of that. What would you call faith? Mm -hmm. It's so, part of that umbrella, so to speak. Yeah, and I yeah. think that's why we're, I think that's why we're struggling to communicate with regard uh -huh. because you're saying baptism is separate and apart from that. And for the sake of the audience who, who probably uh, remember that this stuff we've already discussed, right? So Hebrews is an example of how faith always leads to respond, responding in faith. Yet it, it doesn't include any particular work. It just includes by faith. He did this by faith. He did that. So faith leads to a response. James includes faith as a, res a response to faith as works, but he includes works like, um, keeping yourself unspotted from the world, helping out widows and people in trouble. Um, he does not ever mention baptism in James as being the response or the part of faith, which is really for your view of faith to hold somewhere. You've got to establish that biblically. But, um, but, and, and we're going to beat a dead horse over this too, but there, there's so there many are, dead horses in this conversation. There are, there are. But, but my point is James or uh, is in James, uh, Mike, I called you James. Sorry. My no point that in every in every instance where salvation is is mentioned, you don't have to have water baptism. You don't have to have there aren't there not every passage that mentions people coming uh, to a to a response mentions water baptism in the same way that they don't always mention maybe confession or they don't always mention belief. Jesus says repent or all likewise perish. He doesn't say anything about. Uh, confession or or baptism or or anything of the sort so i i don't want us to say well just because it doesn't mention it right here in this passage means that it automatically isn't involved uh you could say that's just my qualifying you lost your last sentence you could say that what um you could you could say the same thing for other instances in scripture where it talks about um uh, you know, and I don't have one off the top of my head, but uh, you know, th this apostle, um, uh, this apostle said this, and people believed, right? Or, or Jesus said in Luke thirteen, you have to repent, or else you likewise perish, right? He didn't say anything about confession there. Uh, he didn't say anything about baptism there either. So just because a piece of scripture doesn't have that in it doesn't automatically negate it from what what uh, saving faith looks like. Is my yeah. point. So, so I, I don't want to, I'm not going to belabor it, but this is a point you've brought up multiple times and it's important in, in, the, in your understanding of, of baptism is that baptism is somehow part and parcel with all of these things. Whereas we do view repentance and faith as being two sides of the same coin. I think we both agree on that. Um, and it's important we both agree on that, but 
baptism is not a third side of that same coin. <laughs> and that's where uh, we've already talked about this. So I just, I'll just mention yeah, it briefly. That's where I go. Okay. You can't, you can't smuggle in, in, in hamburgers too. It's like, you can't just smuggle anything you want just because repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. Confession is all included in there. They're all parts of the same thing. doesn't mean baptism is. All right. So can I ask a question now? Yep. Unless it's about first Peter. Cause then I got to go. Talk about first Peter. I said, unless it's about first Peter, cause then I have to go. No. no. Okay. So <laughs> let me ask you this question. So do you believe um, that somebody can be a disciple of Jesus Christ without being baptized? Yes. You do. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think so. Okay. So um, I think I find that uh, interesting. So in Matthew, so I'll, I'll say this real quick if I can. I could be wrong on this point. It wouldn't, I don't think, affect the view of baptism being essential for salvation. Okay. It would just mean, okay. well, when we say disciple, we don't just mean saved. We mean a little more than that. But I, I feel like disciples are saved. All so, of them. So. Yeah. So in Matthew chapter 28, 16, he says, and Jesus came and said, all authority in heaven uh, and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. And behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. Now, when we look at this passage in verse 19, he gives uh, uh, two imperatives, which is, as you live or as you go, make disciples of all nations. Those are clearly two imperatives. And then you have a series, uh, or at least two participles, that show us how to fulfill that command. And those participles are baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them uh, to observe all that I've commanded you. Now, if the if the participles modify the imperative, then it would be impossible to be a disciple without being baptized, therefore making baptism necessary in order to be a disciple. So then, okay. how, so then how could you have someone who is a disciple without being baptized? Um, let me put it this way. If I follow your formula, right, then both baptism, uh, baptism is essential for being a disciple, but also so is being taught every, uh, everything that Jesus commanded the disciples, the apostles is also required. No, I, I would, I would agree that, that in order to make disciples, what uh -huh. is, what takes here is. Uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. That's what it means to make a disciple. Okay, so if you've only heard half of what Jesus has commanded, are you a disciple of Christ? Um, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. Well, But if you've only well, been taught half of those things, are you a disciple? Uh, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. I don't know why that wouldn't be a part of... The, the question I see what you're I see what you're saying as I'm far just, as I'm trying to be, have a consistent interpretation well, well, of the one of the one of these things uh, as far as the, the teaching them sure sure if you've if you've been taught half of those things certainly you would be uh, a disciple but it's still part of being a disciple being a disciple isn't one of those things where it's just okay I've planted my flag and now I'm that I'm a disciple I no longer have to learn anything okay but hold on we're getting I think but, you might be missing the thrust of what I'm trying to get at here. Okay. Well, enlighten me. <laughs> um, 
sorry. I don't, I don't mean that to sound, I just, no, I just, no, I know no. how long our conversation is, so I don't want to. No, it's know. all good. Um, so if, if verse 19 is saying that making disciples necessitates, like you cannot be a disciple of Christ unless you have these two things that he commands, baptism and being taught all that Jesus commands, right? That those are the two things required. So you're saying baptism is required to be a disciple. Well, you can't ignore the other phrase if you're going to follow that consistent, you know, interpretation of the passage. So not just being taught what Jesus commands, but being taught all that I've commanded you. So if I've only heard half of, I've been saved, I've been studying the Bible for maybe six months and hearing teaching. Maybe I don't read the Bible every single day. Um, I've only heard maybe about half of what Jesus has commanded. Am I, am I still a disciple, even though I haven't heard all of what Jesus was commanded? No, I, if you I, say I, no, then I'm going to, then I'm going to say, okay, at least you're consistent, but then you've elevated way beyond baptism to be a disciple. No, I, I understand that, but, but I see what you're saying. And the teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you is a, a lifelong process. Whereas the baptizing them in the name of the father and the Holy spirit is the, is the initial point in which they become a disciple. Okay. Well, that's, I don't think that's what the passage says. I think now you're, you're just kind of, I think that's a, a rescue device for your interpretation. Okay. So, so you, so would you agree that the participles that modify the command to go and make disciples is baptizing and teaching people that all that Jesus has, has commanded. Is it inherent in that passage that in order to be a disciple, one has to be baptized and one has to be taught the things that Jesus has it's in, not has to be. Um, it is inherent that Jesus is saying, here's how I want you to go make disciples. I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I want you to teach them everything I taught you. And uh, that does not it, that does not mean, um, and if they have not had both of these things happen, they are officially not saved. That, okay. that's, all, that's, that's all that really matters for the sake of our debate. Yeah. No, I, I understand. And the thing that I'm honing in on is the, that, the in in order to be a disciple here in the language that's spoken the participle that modifies making a disciple is being baptized in the name of the father son and the holy spirit it doesn't seem i mean even even william lane craig would say that and, and william lane craig is 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 no friend of uh, well, i don't necessarily say he's no friend but he wouldn't be a friend of of the theology that i hold but even he would say that there wasn't one new testament disciple that in the first century that wasn't baptized and well, so I, I yeah okay i don't know if i don't know how you can make that kind of that kind of bold claim that for the whole 100 year period there was this never happened like i i don't think you can make that claim but um i'll say this i love william lane craig but he's not my go-to for interpreting passages well, of scripture that. uh i love him for his philosophy and for how rounded his studies of different topics are and things like that but when it comes to verse by verse interpretation of scripture um He's not like the guy I quote for that particular issue. No, I, I understand that. I get so that. So what I will say though is, um, uh, and I'll have to go back and to be honest, to your point, real quick. To okay, your, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, in verse twenty, I, I will have to go back and look at verse twenty and see the the mm -hmm. the intricacies of of the language there with regards to um, is is this something that uh, is just plain Jane? Is this a uh, a figure of speech, how that's constructed. Cause I think you make a good point with regard to 
uh, you know, verse 20. I'll, I'll seed you that, that. That's something that I need to look at. But for the sake of the discussion, mm-hmm. uh, it seems to me now, it seems to me that that at least the, the, the modification that we're talking about, that that modifying the imperative is the baptizing in the name of the Father. Yeah. And and what we, what I would agree on with you on is standard operating procedure, right? You put your faith in, tri- in, in Christ, your trust in Christ, you get baptized, and that's your initiation into the the acknowledged body of Christ on earth, you know, and now you're beginning to learn his teachings, and that's what it is to be a disciple. Um, but where I, where I get off the train is where you go, therefore, baptism is essential for salvation. Um, I just don't see that in the passage. Is it commanded? Yes. Is it normal? Yes. Is it expected of every believer? Yes. Is it the first act? Yes. All that's, all that's there. Um, but it does, it's not salvific, just like knowing everything Jesus commanded is not salvific, (laughs) but, but learning about all that Jesus commanded is part of being a disciple. Okay. No problem. All right. I'll let you roll and do another passage. And then I've got, and then we'll, I'll just lay it out there. We're going to have a conversation about first Peter (laughs) three. All right. All right. And I got to go after that or right before that. <laughs> okay. So um, I, I just, here's what I want to want to do. Um, I, let's just jump right into the first Peter passage. Okay. I don't, Good. I'm not going to bring up a whole other thing to, to, to cover. And then maybe we can both offer like a closing statement of some kind, even though I don't have anything prepared. <laughs> yeah, I don't either. So we'll just wing it. Yeah. We'll wing it. Well, my last name's winger. Everybody says I wing everything. So that's why I said it. Yeah. Thanks. See, there you go. So um, I'll, let, I'll let you make the point about First Peter 3. Oh, no, no, no. Don't put it on me. It's all on you, buddy. But I've been speaking so long, and people are getting tired of my voice. So, <laughs> No, no, no. It's your point. Well, my point in uh, – let's see. What's Where's the verse? Rochambeau, rock, paper, scissors, shoot. I got scissors. Oh, I got rock. <laughs> okay. So you get to choose. There you go. <laughs> I just cheated, though. I just I totally cheated that. Uh, <laughs> All right. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll share this. Okay. First Peter three 21 is, has been shared not by you, but I've heard it shared to say the baptism saves you. I had a conversation with a, a, a Lutheran pastor one time and he was like, Mike, you know, you have passages about baptism that you don't know how to explain. And I, and I, I just was like, uh, not that I'm aware of. <laughs> so, and I'm not saying that there aren't, don't exist, but not that I knew of, you know, pastor said that. and he says to me, um, because because he knows what side I'm on. And he says, baptism, which corresponds to this now, saves you. It saves you. Baptism saves you. It's a simple formula. Now, this is not your argument, I don't think. Yeah. Because the, it sounds like you've thought the, more about this. But the rest, but you asked me to go first. So the rest of this says, um, um, not as a removal of the dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So my my short you know, exegesis of this, First Peter 3.21 is it says baptism saves you. Baptism, which is a word which we know definitely, absolutely means more than water baptism. In scripture, it refers to being buried with Christ, being raised with Christ, uh, specifically buried with Christ. It refers to being filled with the Holy Spirit and brought into the body uh, supernaturally. Um, It refers to regeneration and washing of sins, uh, not of the body. And so Peter qualifies what kind of baptism saves by separating it from the water act, not as a removal of the dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. So my simple question is, is it possible to have an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection without water baptism? And I think that the answer is uh, just obviously yes. Like obviously I can trust in God and appeal to him for a a clean heart um, through Jesus without being baptized 
And that's the thing that saves. Although water baptism speaks of this and is commanded. And so of course is natural to be done. Uh, anyway, so there's, there's my spiel. Okay. Um, shocker. Uh, I disagree. <laughs> right. <laughs> Just fly off the table. Yeah. You, you disagree. Uh, so, and I, well, there is a, well, there is one point I agree with you is yeah. that the word baptism is used in multiple contexts throughout scripture. Um, it does uh, speak of Holy Spirit baptism, baptism of fire, all of these things. Um, so in order to understand um, how we're to interpret that here in First Peter, you and I would both agree that, that context is necessary. And I think the way in which we can arrive that this baptism is water baptism is simply following the analogy or, or the illustration that's used uh, from verse 18 through verse uh, 22. And so 18 says, Christ suffered once for sins, righteousness, unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, uh, made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed the spirits in prison. We could go forever on the multiple interpretations of that because they formerly did not obey when God's patient patience uh, waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being constructed, in which few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Um, and so the illustration here that's being used uh, is that there were these people uh, that got, that Jesus, in uh, a spiritual sense, went back and preached to all these people uh, in the spirit of Noah, uh, in which he proclaimed that, hey, the earth's going to flood. Uh, Waited days and Noah while the ark was being constructed, in which eight persons were brought safely through water. And so then he transitions into baptism, which corresponds to this. Now, what's the this? This seems to indicate the illustration that he's talked about with, with Noah, that few that, that persons were brought safely uh, through water. Now, however you want to construct the analogy whether it's the ark that saved, whether it is in, in some sense that they were brought to safety through the water and that's what saved them. However you want to construct that, this baptism that's being spoken of corresponds to this analogy that involves water. And so this baptism, uh, which corresponds to this illustration about Noah, the ark, and eight persons being saved through water, now saves you. And he clarifies, it's not anything that's special it's in the water, which I completely agree with, that just getting wet is not what saves somebody um, as an appeal. But it's not the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Well, how? Through the resurrection of Jesus. So this baptism doesn't save me in the fact that I got dunked in water, but because this baptism, this baptism that corresponds to this analogy saves me in that in being baptized, it is at that point that I'm making a good, an appeal for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. And so I think that's just the simple reading uh, of the text. I don't know how, uh, and, and I obviously say this, I don't mean to be arrogant, but it seems that the connection here that Peter is making is that in the same way that Noah and his family were in some sense saved through the water, 
that also we are saved in baptism because it brings us uh, as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection. There you go. I agree with almost every single thing you just said. I knew you were um, going to almost agree with every single thing. That but that's, but that, that's, it's no, important it. to see this because it's, it's sometimes it's the way we're viewing it that causes us to feel like something I just said made my case. When in reality, it's just like, it made my case if my case is true. <laughs> um, and I'm not saying that this is you, not me. This is either of us can be in this boat. Um, but anyway, let, let me, uh, <clears throat> let me be less vague. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, a couple things I was just curious in the Greek what because you were saying I noticed that you 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 slightly changed the translation in verse 20 mm -hmm. um, to match 21 so in 21 it says baptism which corresponds to this now saves you that saves you right this is the ESV okay. but in verse 20 you said they were they were saved through water uh, yeah, a few than eight persons were brought safely through water in verse, in verse 20. I think that, um, I have it in a, in a SB somewhere. Well, pull that up if you can on your artificial intelligence. Well, I'm looking up the Greek. So it was like the episode was the, the lexical form of that word. And then, well, um, uh, I'm just curious. And and so soze is, or sozo, sozo. It's, so it's the same root Greek word. I was just curious because yeah. I, I noticed you did that. Um, now let's, let's read this again. And from, from my perspective, okay. <laughs> so here's first Peter three in context, I'll read the same area you did, but I'll just offer my commentary along with it if mm -hmm. I can. Um, so for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That's key to this passage. Yeah. Jesus, death in the flesh, alive in the spirit. And, uh, and that's how I'm going to be brought to God. Then it talks about how he, he preached to the spirits who formerly were disobedient. And that's a whole interesting study. Um, yeah. In verse 20, um, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons were brought safely through water. And we can even say saved through water. Um, they were not saved by the water. They were saved through it. That's, mm -hmm. that's the implication here. And there's a, there is a difference. And the way, if you look at the picture, the way that they were saved through water is water represented death and judgment, right? In the, in the flood. Floodwaters were judgment waters. Everybody died in them, but they were brought safely through that death, through that water. And then he says, baptism. Now imagine if he said verse 21 like this, baptism now saves you. I would think naturally, this is speaking of the water act of baptism. Right or wrong, that would be my impression. Mm -hmm. But it's as though Peter wants us to know that he's speaking of the spiritual reality, not the water act. When he says baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to god for a good conscience how does baptism save me it is an appeal to god for a good conscience through the resurrection of jesus christ so he literally shows us this is what i mean when i say baptism saves you i mean when you have an appeal to god for a good conscience through the resurrection this does not necessitate a water act um, in and of itself and it's specifically in peter he separates it from the water act 
as far as what is the thing that's actually saving you. And I'm, you kind of agreed with this, kind of agree with this in your in your uh, exposition of the passage. So just to let you know, the Christian Standard Bible um, has been being saved through water and then yeah. baptism now saves you. So my, my point is that my, my, I guess my response to that would be this. If he's simply saying the... Uh, this is some type of spiritual uh, realization uh, that takes place in verse uh, 21, um, then what would be the point in noting in verse 20 that they were saved through water? He's saying, okay, you're saved through the water, or these people were brought safely or saved through water in verse 20, and now baptism saves you, but not through the water, but through this spiritual realization, right? It doesn't seem like that is, uh, it seems like you have to work, and, and I don't mean this disingenuously. It, it seems like you have to work really hard to, to view verse 21 as a spiritual reality when when it seems this, the, the simpler form is to just say, okay, well, he's using Noah uh, and his salvation or their salvation through water to make a point with regards to verse 21, that baptism corresponding to this, meaning in the same way, baptism in the same way that I'm working this illustration, right? In the same way that these people were brought safely through water, baptism now saves you, not because you got wet, but because this baptism brings you safely through uh, to Jesus on the basis of the resurrection as an appeal for a good conscience. It seems that's the illustration. That's the construction that Peter's saying. He mentions nothing about. Okay. So I would reality. say that, um, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll let you finish. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, it, it, it just doesn't seem to me in verse um, uh, 2021 that I mean, it, it clearly seems to me that he's talking about water baptism because he mentions the the throwing off of the 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 dirt from the flesh. It seems like they are getting wet in verse twenty one. Uh huh. So uh, when he says, "Not the removal of the dirt from the body, not as a removal of the dirt from the body," you're like, "So obviously, it's about the water." Well, I think that corresponds to the illustration in verse twenty. Okay, so let me let me back up, give it greater context, because it doesn't start with Noah. It starts with Jesus. Jesus, in verse 18, right? Um, he suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Death in the flesh, alive in the spirit. Then he talks about this interesting thing about the angels and the, speaks of Noah, right? And Noah, the ark, there's a death that happens. The world dies, but they're in the ark. And then they are brought safely through to the other side. Um, and then their corresponding message relating to death and life is baptism. Baptism into death, as it said in Romans 6, um, as it said in the other passages we spoke of. And so the, 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 um, the thing that saves you is the death and resurrection, which is pictured in the ark, right? Judgment, death being brought through. But that's not that's not to say that the water saves you. So as though, as though to make sure we don't misunderstand, he says, not as a removal of the dirt from the body, but the baptism that saves you is what? An appeal to God for a good conscience. Now, this is obviously speaking beyond the water act 
itself. This is speaking of the internal thing that happens inside my heart appealing to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. Now, this baptism, but but Mike, my point is this, that no matter how you translate this, this section, is that verse 21, verse 20, and verse 22, or, or at least verse, uh, verse 20 and 21, there has to be a, a congruency here with the meaning of water in verse 21, or verse 20, 21. Now, yeah. this baptism... Well, I'd, I'd say water speaks of death. Okay. Um, so this baptism um, in verse 21, I, I think what Peter is is mentioning here is that just getting wet is not what saves you. I, I'd agree with that. that anybody, if, if, if just getting wet is what saves you then doing a gainer off the diving board at the local pool would be enough. No, uh, I, I don't think he's fighting that goofy of an interpretation when he says not as a removal of the dirt from the body. I don't think he's saying anybody who gets wet is saved. If you take, I don't think he's fighting that. I think he's clarifying his point. He's speaking of the spiritual reality of being identified with the death and resurrection of Jesus. But, but nowhere does he, but he doesn't specifically say that though. And that wouldn't align with, that wouldn't align with the illustration used in verse 20. I, yeah, I think it does. I think the illustration is death and life, death and life, death and life. Oh, okay. And it aligns with, with Romans and it, aligns, it, it speaks to the thing that baptism represents. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, so that's, so I well, think, I think Peter's gone to great lengths to keep baptism as central in the theology of Christianity but to not misunderstand it to being that the water act itself is necessary for salvation. Well, I, I think, and obviously we're going to disagree, but I think he, he, he clarifies baptism, that baptism isn't just about getting wet, but the baptism is that appeal uh, for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now that's, the, that's the last thing that I'll say on it just because of time constraints. I got to get, I've got to get moving here and like, okay. So how, how, um, how much time do you say you have? We've got like four minutes. Four minutes. All right. So let me ask a question. Then we'll each do like a one minute summary or whatever of our positions. <laughs> okay. How's that sound? Um, okay. is it it, I've got to go. Okay. Is it possible to appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus um, before you've been baptized? Uh, according to first Peter chapter three, 21. No. Okay. And I'm speaking of water baptism. So you, it's not even possible. You can't, it can't be done. Well, right here in verse 21, it says, corresponding to this, uh, baptism saves you as an appeal to a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Cool. I, All right. I, I, my cross-reference, and that'll just lead into another discussion, but yeah. I want to clarify that on a later video that's with for no, you. No, it's fine. I think you can, you can share your, or should I share, who, who should close first here? Um. Well, I got I got the first word there, so you can get the get the last word there. Okay. Or so I got the first it. word here in in the opening of this section, so you can get the first word in the closing. Okay, so I'll share first. All right, so I I think that um that one of the things I labored to do in this discussion was to offer a uh, a consistent interpretation of baptism. That basically my view of baptism it can be can be applied to every passage equally, including those that just say that you're saved by faith and they don't mention baptism. Like, And I do believe that that's consistent. And what you can do is you can take that view and apply it all across scriptures. I've given examples of Cornelius 
uh, the thief on the cross that really, really challenged, especially Cornelius, um, refuting the idea that one is not saved, has not appealed to God for a con good conscience until water baptism. Uh, Cornelius is, to me, a slam dunk passage, and Cornelius's passage clarifies Acts 2.38, which is probably the favorite passage for this conversation uh, on the side of those saying baptism is required. Um, and so I'd encourage people to go back over that and reconsider those points if they haven't. I think the clear teaching is that we are saved today the same way Abraham was saved. We, we hear God and respond in faith. I trust in God. And that baptism is a picture of what happens in Christ, um, the water baptism. But you can be in Christ before that water act takes place as wonderful and beautiful and and commanded as it is. So there's my there's my uh, little review. And Dean's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Well, I, I just like to say you know, to you, Mike, I appreciate um, the ability that we've both, uh, you know, demonstrated to have a cordial conversation, joking here and there, but also yeah. being firm where where we need to be firm. Yeah, with likewise. And, you know, I would just go back to my opening statement. I think that um, all humanity has fallen short of the glory of God and that um, because of that, they need a, a, a savior and to be in the right relationship. People are saved um, by grace through faith in the powerful working of God. And, and I think that the Bible indicates that upon the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, individuals um, uh, are, are saved on the basis of their faith response and baptism for the remission of sins. And that it's and that, that's a clear, consistent teaching that any time you see um, baptism and salvation mentioned uh, in the same passage, um, you don't have salvation before baptism and that um, maybe one of the key passages, I, I would encourage everybody to go back and, and look at this discussion. I'm grateful for the discussion and Mike's given me some things to look at and, and, and study. And I, and I hope that maybe I've given Mike something to look back and, and study as well. And um, I appreciate uh, this opportunity and, and I hope that this benefits uh, everybody who's interested, not in just this, uh, not just in the personalities involved, but also the, the greater discussion that's at hand. So thanks. Yeah. Awesome.